13, with the star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man, The Lives of Harry Lyons. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyons. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. For those of you who know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives, and I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter, the prison, or the grave. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of mystery, comes his most famous character and crime's most deadly enemy as we present... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe. Hello there, this is Diamond. You know this business I'm in can get pretty silly sometimes. I can go along for a whole month and get by on nothing but meals at the automat and a dozen laughs a day. The funny ones usually pay just as well as the tough ones, but eventually somebody starts something that's about as funny as an open grave. Hey everyone, this is OTR Rob, welcoming you to another edition of Richard Diamond, Private Detective. This episode comes from February 5th, 1950. The episode is entitled, To Guard a Seal. No, we're not talking about uh, a wax seal. We're talking about a S-E-A-L seal. And you know what they say. Uh, you'll hear, see some of the weirdest things on the streets of New York. And the seal being no exception. However, the Chamber of Commerce of New York figures the weirder the things are that have been seen on the streets of New York is always good for tourism. And this seal definitely is. And after that is The Lives of Harry Lime from October 26th, 1951. The episode is entitled Every Frame Has a Silver Lining. Now, it's a play on words, of course, and it's also a play on a metaphor. But... With Harry Lyme, you don't know if the frame means a blackmail or if the frame is referencing a portrait with a special frame on it with something hidden. 
for Harry Lime, it could be either one. <laughs> so enjoy this episode of Harry Lime and the Saint from March 11th, 1951. The episode is entitled Button Button, which is part of a phrase of a child's game called Button Button, Who Has the Button? So that uh, you can take that any way you want. And The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. From November 29th, 1948, the episode is entitled Hard Way Out, and after that is Box 13. From January 2nd, 1948, the episode is entitled Triple Cross. It could mean anything from triple blackmail to a fighter. So, either way... Enjoy all these episodes, and I'll see you all back here next week, God willing. And the creeks don't rise. Keep your mask on, social distance, get your vaccine, and still wear your mask after your vaccine, because we're going to be wearing them for a bit here, because it's going to be weird with this new strain coming around, so you still want to keep yourself safe and keep yourself under wraps, and that means wearing a mask. It's not political, it's just sensible. Enjoy. presents Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Diamond, this is Walt. Where the devil are you? Where I started out to be, down on River Street, looking for well, the you guy... you stay right there and wait for me, but you might as well stop looking. Why stop looking? Take my word for it, he's not there. Well, if you're so smart, where is he? The city morgue. We fished him out of the river ten minutes ago. Here's another exciting case from the files of Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Diamond Detective Agency, first over the bars. Oh, hello, Helen, baby. Busy? No, why? I'm lonesome. Can't you come over? Honey, I'd love to, but you can never tell when... Mr. Diamond. Oh, see what I mean? Oh, a customer. Well, let's see. What can I do for you? Uh, I want to hire you. Helen, the man wants to hire me. Oh, good. I'll call you back. Bye. Bye. Now, uh, Mr. Uh, uh... Uh, Wellington, Mr. Diamond. Hmm. Casper Wellington. Oh, well, pull up a couch and tell me the details, Mr. Wellington. I need a bodyguard, Mr. Diamond. Why? Oh, it's not for myself. It's for Timothy. Well, why does Timothy need a bodyguard? Someone's trying to kill him. Oh, you've been to the police? Oh, yes, yes. But they feel it's not quite important enough for them. You mean this Timothy's life is in danger and the police won't handle it? Yes. Isn't it ridiculous? I don't know. Has anybody tried to kill Timothy before? Well, no one has exactly tried to kill him, but I very definitely expect an attempt. Hmm. Right, now, look, uh, this uh, Timothy, is he a friend of yours? Oh, yes. A very good friend. So what makes you think that someone is going to try to kill him? Mr. Diamond, I came here to hire you to protect Timothy. I'm perfectly willing to pay you your fee, but for the moment, 
The rest of your questions must go unanswered. Well, uh, my fee's $100 a day in expenses, Mr. Bullington. Still perfectly willing to pay it? Here's the cash. Mm -hmm. And there'll be another hundred if you protect Timothy long enough for me to get him on a train tomorrow. Where's he going? Out of town, where he can be safe. What's Timothy's last name? That will also have to go unanswered. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. Supposing I do take the job, where do I meet this Timothy? How will I know him? If you take the job, he'll be in your office in a matter of minutes. Well, something sure doesn't ring up right, but the 200 fish and expenses, I'd play footsies with a cobra. Good. Now, I'm going down to the train station to pick up Timothy's ticket. When he arrives, I expect you to remain with him constantly. Until tomorrow? Oh, I got a small apartment. I hate the bundle. Don't let him out of your sight for a moment. I want him alive and well when he gets on that train in the morning. Does he play Pachisi? Well, I doubt it, but you never can tell. He might like it. Hmm, dandy. Have him at Grand Central at 8 o'clock. I'll meet you. Do you know of any way I could possibly learn to hate money? If I did, I would never have come to you. Uh, good day, Mr. Diamond. Oh. Hmm. Atlantic Bone and Fertilizer. Oh, that's a pet. Just wondering how a new business would work out. Now what's wrong? Uh, I have a very unhealthy feeling that I've just let myself in for something I won't like. Oh, the client? Well, kind of. I've got a guard, a friend of his. What's the matter with that? Oh, I'm not going all through that again. The client just came on like secret service. I got the name of the guy he wants guarded, and I know that someone's going to try and kill him. And that's it. Rick, you be careful. Honey, honey, the client shoved 200 bucks in my rural hot hand. Oh, good. What do you want me to do? I'm trying for capitalists this year. Didn't your client go to the police first? Sure. He went to the police with the... Hey, you. Me? What? Yeah, you. Rick, are you listening? Yeah, I'm listening. Put down the phone, friend. We want to talk to you. Well, if you're listening, why don't you answer my question? If your client went to the police... That's better. Well, now, I'm a sport. Especially when someone's got a gun pointed at me. Oh, the gun ain't gonna hurt you, chum, if you answer a couple of questions. Where's Casper Wellington? Who? You gonna be difficult? Look, you got a gun on me. Who wants to be difficult? You don't know Casper Wellington, friend? Uh, never heard of him. We well, seen him come into the building. No, so you figured he came to see me. It's such a small building, only about a hundred offices. Oh, that's pretty funny. Glad you liked it. No, but we didn't. You're the only private detective in the building. We figure maybe Casper wanted to hire you. What would he want to hire me for? What did this guy do? How do you like that, George? Now he's a nosy comic. Durante gets away with it. Friend, I have just decided your humor bores me. Yeah, it's pretty bad, ain't it, Tony? Suppose we push his face around, huh? Maybe he don't feel like no more Joe. Oh, now, wait a minute. I don't know anything about this Casper or whatever his name is. What good is it going to do to work me over? Well, now, you see, honey, you make got real nasty dispositions. We've been crossed, and then you make with the jokes. We don't like being the only ones unhappy, so we think maybe you ought to join. Now, look. Uh, hold it a second, George. What for? It's a setup. Oh, wait. We mess him up, the law comes. We got a fine cast, but we ain't got no time to play patty cake with the cops. Uh, I just want to cross the mouth. Forget it. Look, friend, you sure Casper Wellington didn't come in here? I couldn't be more positive. Okay. Put down the rod, George. That don't look so unhappy. Maybe the shamus is lying. We catch him telling a fib. Just think of the fun you can have later on, huh? Come on. We'll leave him? Yeah. So long, friend. And uh, for your sake, I hope you've been leveling. Yeah. See you around. Yeah, bye. Hmm. 
This is a full fashion shop for you, Palmer. Now, you listen to me, Richard Diamond. The next time you hang up on me, but I'll I... never speak to you again. But, and uh, you but... better have a pretty good excuse for doing it this time. But, you know I take a lot of things from you, Rick, but never, never once have you hung up on me. Helen, please. And I think it was rude and inconsiderate. Helen. And I want to know right now, this minute, just what kind of a poor, lame brain excuse you're going to come up with. Helen! Well? No. Look, baby, I don't know what's going on. This is like doing business in a roundhouse. The only reason I hung up on you was because two guys stole in here and shoved guns in my face. Rick! And they were looking for the guy who came in earlier and hired me to look after someone named Timothy that I haven't even seen yet. It sounds awfully confusing. It is. Oh, hold the phone. Here's somebody else. Come in with your hands up. You Richard Diamond? Yep. Got a crate there addressed to you. Oh, that figures. Bring it in. Helen. Yes? You sent me maybe a present? No. You want me to? Yeah, but someone's beating you to it. Where do you want it? Good grief. Put it down right there. What's the matter? The present. The biggest crate you ever saw. A crate? What's in it? How do I know? Well, open it. Okay, Mr. Diamond, stand right here. Yeah. There you are. I hope you still be very happy. Helen. Yes? Hold the phone. I'm going to open this thing. This is your idea of a joke. Please calm down and tell me what's wrong. What? Can't you hear it? Well, I heard something, but I thought you must have eaten your lunch too fast. Well, I'm standing on my desk trying to fight off a monster. What? Call up Charles Adams right away. A monster? Yes. I'd swear it was a seal, but I know my friends better than that. This thing has got to be poisonous. A seal? Yes, a seal. Hey, he's not so bad. He's applauding. <laughs> You must have liked that remark about Adams. Now you stop it. Do you expect me to believe all this? Uh, she doubts you, fella. Say a few words. Rick, who in the world would send you a seal? I don't even need the look. This has got to be Timothy. Oh, it is Timothy. When he heard his name, he made like a curtain call. Sounds like one Richard Diamond. Hey, that's pretty... nothing. I'll call you back. Where are you going? I'm going to take Timothy right back to Mr. Casper Wellington and tell him that... Yes? Oh, for the love of... I don't know where to find Mr. Casper Wellington. Well, there it was. It was pretty silly. The smart, shrewd, level-headed Richard Diamond, for the sake of a couple of hundred fast bucks, winds up playing nursemaid and companion to a honking seal. Just to make sure it was, Timothy, I took a look at the crate, and there on top was a small printed card. It read, This is Timothy. If you want him to do something, throw him a fish. Herring. Signed, Casper Wellington. Well, that tore it. My temper was already pushing my hair up to attention, so I went out to the nearest delicatessen and came back with a bag of fish. With this, I lured Timothy out of the building and down in the street. I had to find Casper Wellington, so 60 pedestrians and one unhappy cabbie later, Timothy and I stole casually into the 5th Precinct Police Station. Oh, well, hello, Sergeant Otis. Oh, oh, how are you, Shamus? Huh? Huh, what? What'd you just say? I said, hello, Sergeant Otis. No, after that. 
Yeah, 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 that was it. Something wrong, Sergeant? Yeah! Otis. Otis, say hello to Timothy. Timothy, this is Sergeant Otis. Lieutenant! Lieutenant! Go on and kiss the Sergeant Timothy. Go on. Oh, no, no, no. Get him away from me. Get him away. Otis, he's not so bad. Lieutenant! Now, Otis, come down off that desk. You look sillier than I did. He's trying to eat me. Oh, be quiet. You too, Timothy. You'll wake up the lieutenant. Here's a fish. Throw it to Timothy. Enough to you, Diamond. You'll probably take my arm along with it. Get away. Get away. What the devil is going on out here? Otis, what are you doing up there? Hello, Walt. What are you doing to my sergeant? And you shut up, Otis. That wasn't me. What do you mean it wasn't you? Of course it was you. Walt, meet Timothy. How do you... I'd hate to think what would happen if someone wanted in here with a walrus. Come on, Timothy. Let's go see the brave old head of homicide. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Get him out of here. Oh, relax, Otis. Timothy's as scared as you are. Oh, yeah? What makes you say that? He's probably thinking there's more like you. That would be a horrible shock to anyone, even a seal. Come on, Timothy. Uh, You get that thing out of here right now, Diamond. Everybody's standing on something. You'd think it was a steam bath. Up till now, I've had two reported homicides and a couple of fat robberies. And if you think you're going to wander in here with that thing and confuse the whole department, you're mistaken. Now get it out of here. Oh, Walt, it's only a seal. Have a fish. I'm not hungry. No, no, Walt. It's for Timothy. Feed it to him. He'll he'll love you. Yeah? Do you think so? Sure, sure, Walt. Go ahead. Try it. Okay. Here, Timothy. Hey, he's applauding. Sure, he's a nice little fella. Now, climb down and help me. Uh, give me another fish. Oh, won't come down without it, huh? Okay, well, speak. Oh, don't be ridiculous. I want to feed it to Timothy. He likes me. <laughs> See? Oh, lovely. Why don't you two get engaged? Oh. Well, after everybody got used to him, Timothy made the rounds of the whole department with the commissioner being the only exception, of course. I told Walt the story about Casper Wellington and the two Gonniffs who had come into my office looking for him. So Walt put Otis to work checking on the whereabouts of my missing client. Along about three in the afternoon, Otis pounced in with some news. Uh, hey, Diamond. You find something? Oh, hi, Timothy. Yeah, uh... Say, I checked with the Humane Society, and they report some guy who lives down by the docks. The name's Wellington, all right. He's been turned in a couple of times because he raises seals, and they make a lot of noise. Oh, uh, and Lieutenant, we just got a report on another homicide. Well, thanks, Sporty. You tell the Lieutenant all about it, Otis. I'm going after Casper Wellington. What's the address? Uh, here it is. 918 River Street. Come on, Tim. <coughs> Goodbye, Timothy. Otis. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, what was I saying? Homicide, remember? Just a little old homicide. I left Walt and Otis climbing over the furniture and headed for the address of Casper Wellington. Timothy and I grabbed the first cabbie who didn't believe what he was seeing, and 20 minutes later, we pulled up in front of a building on River Street. Thanks, cabbie. Yeah, sure. Thank the man, Timothy. Uh, mister? Yeah. I didn't ask you nothing when you got in the cab because I just didn't believe it. Is that a seal you got with you? You're expecting maybe a raccoon? Do you always take him around with you like that? Sure, we're brothers. Drop by the house sometime for dinner when Mom isn't taking a swim. Hmm. She's not a very good driver, is he, Timothy? 
You know it. Come on, you're going home. Hold it right here, friend. Hmm? You hide him. This is a gun in your back. Oh. Yeah. Oh. You lied to me, friend. I'll go stand in the corner. Nah, don't move. Okay. George, grab the seal. Oh, yeah. now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You can't do that. Want to bet? Come here, you. Take your hands off that seal. Shut your mouth, friend. <laughs> Next time you don't get it across the neck, I'll give you the rod on the skull. Okay, friend. I got him. All right, get him in a car. And you, stay put. One bad move, you're going to get shot up very bad. Come on, George. You got that thing in the car? Yeah, you're saying let's get out of here. All right, friend. Yeah. You uh, see this? I got pointed at you. I see. Good. Forget about today. You won't see it again. Open that big yap of yours and it goes boom. Now turn around, because when we leave, I don't want you looking back for no license number. Well, I stood there while they drove off with poor little Timothy. Then I made a quick dash across the street and to a store with a phone booth. Seconds later, I was hearing one of the most beautiful sounds in the world. Diamond, this is Walt. Where the devil are you? Where I started out to be, down on River Street, looking for my client. Well, you stay right there and wait for me, but you might as well stop looking. Well, why stop looking? His house is just down at the end of the block. Well, take my word for it, he isn't there. Well, if you're so smart, where is he? The city morgue. We fished him out of the river ten minutes ago. What? He was suffering from a hole in his chest. Dead before he was tossed in. Oh, Walt, Walt. Remember those two guys who came into my office earlier? Yeah. Well, they just put the snatch on Timothy and belted me across the neck for my trouble. They swiped the seal? Yeah, so get on here. I'll meet you at Casper Wellington's house. Anybody in the house, Rick? Well, no answer. Well, let's case the place. I've got a skeleton key. To Alt. To Alt. It's open, see? Now, if you'll notice as I walk in, at no time do my feet leave my legs. Very funny. Yeah, smells like somebody's been cooking up a fish stew. Crummy joint. Ooh, get a load of that kitchen. What a mess. Oh, weren't cooking fish, Walt, just cleaning it. There's still a mess of them left on the sink. Well, Casper raised seals. Where are the rest of them? Walt. Yeah? Come here. What is it? Get a look at this backyard. Holy cow. Bunch of dead seals. Who in the world would do anything like that? Maybe your two friends. Hey, what's this? What's what? This bag on the floor, leather bag. What's in it? Ah, nothing. Wait a minute. Some kind of dust at the bottom. Well, save it. We'll have it analyzed when we get down to the station. We've got to check up on those two guys who kidnapped Timothy. This is the craziest case. I got a hunch. Sure, it's crazy, but if I'm right, it's also pretty smart. Let's go to the station. Uh, hey, Lieutenant. Yeah, Otis? Uh, we just got something else on that Casper Wellington guy. Oh? What did he steal? Hey, how'd you know? Just a guess. Well, what is it, Hammerhead? Well, uh, it uh, seems this Wellington guy works at, uh, I mean, used to work for David and Sons. David and Sons? Uh, diamond importers. Oh, that ties it. Would somebody mind telling me what the devil this is all about? And Rick, you stay out of it. Now, Otis, what about Wellington? Wellington? Oh, he ran off with a load of diamonds. Yeah, 50,000 bucks worth. Hey, but you don't... Rick, will you please, for the sake of my sour stomach, tell me exactly what it is you know? I'd be glad to, Lieutenant. It's very simple. Wellington comes to me and asks me to guard Timothy. 
two guys kidnapped him. That we heard. Then we find a bunch of dead seals in Wellington's backyard and the remains of a pile of cleanfish. So? So, the two guys who kidnapped Timothy were obviously after something, and the seal was part of it. Hey, maybe Timothy wasn't a seal after all. Now, what would he be, Otis? Well, if those guys wanted him that bad, maybe he was a mink. Oh. Oh, that bag you picked up, Walt. Have that powder in the bottom analyzed. I'll lay six to an even that it's diamond dust. Well, you think... Yeah, yeah, I think Timothy's got a stomach full of diamonds. What? I think Casper was mixed up with the two guys who grabbed the seal, but in some way crossed them. Why? He had to hide the loot, so he stuck it in some fish and fed it to Timothy. Then he left Timothy with me for protection, until he could get him shipped out on the train. And in the meantime, the two guys who found Casper killed him and went back to his house to find the loot. Mm -hmm. They figured out the fish like you did and killed the seals in the backyard trying to find the stuff. You, my friend, went a herring. Otis... Have the powder in the bottom of this bag analyzed. Put out a 108 on Timothy. Yes, sir. Diamond here will give you the description of the guys who grabbed him. We'll never find him that way. Uh, You got a better idea? Maybe, yeah. Look, you said those two guys killed Casper and then went right over to the house to look for the missing diamonds. Yes. All right, they knew where to look, but they didn't find anything. So they waited for me and Timothy. So? So Casper Wellington probably told them all about it before they killed him, trying to save his own life. All right, I'll buy that. So what? So by now they must know how hot those diamonds are. They're certainly not going to try to get rid of me in town. And then they leave town. Yeah. And with that much loot, it would be a little risky if they tried by car. All right, all right. How do they do it? The same way Casper thought of. Ship Timothy out on a train. Wait a minute, Rick. Otis. Yeah? Put in a call to all units. Tell them to cover the airports, train, and bus stations. Be on the lookout for a seal that's about to be shipped. Come on, Walt. Where to? Well, as long as Casper Wellington already made the arrangements by train, let's go down to Grand Central. Maybe our two seal nappers will keep the reservation. I piled in the squad car again, and 20 minutes later, we were standing in the middle of Grand Central Station with a bag of fish and a weather eye out for the missing seal and his two abductors. Now, where do we start? Well, Walt, why don't you just go ask information? Just say, I'm looking for two men and a seal. The seal is hiding $50,000 worth of diamonds. Now, you stop that. This was plenty silly before a jewel robbery and a homicide get into the picture, but now it's gotten ridiculous. Well, if I was a seal, where would I go? They have to crate him, the shipping department. And so, with their trusty bag of fish, the two brave detectives oh, walked non shut up and let's go. Oh, no, come on, let's go get something. Well, smile, Walt. This kind of case doesn't happen but once every 10,000 years. Think of your report to the commissioner. If you don't stop kidding with me, so help me hey, out. Hey, Walt. Oh, now what? Look, those two guys. Where? Going down the ramp. Oh, Got a big box. That's it. Let's take them. You said they got guns. They were pointing things at shot bullets. Could be guns. Take it easy. They're going up to that counter. Yeah. Hold it. Hold it here. No sense in starting a shooting match. Too many people. Well, what do we do? Maybe the seal's not in the box. And if I pick them up without the loot, we may never find it. I got an idea. Go ahead, genius. Timothy likes fish, doesn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, fish. take this bag. They know me, so you walk down there and move in close to the box. Timothy's bound to get a whiff, and if I know Timothy, he'll raise a few flippers. You want me to... You want to get those diamonds, don't you? Oh, give me the bag. Don't snap. People will just think you ran out of cologne. I'll get going. Yeah. Uh, pardon me, but I'd like to find out about sending something. Oh, yeah? Well, what's the idea, Buster? We was here first. Shut up, stupid man. You boys must be really sending something big. I do know, I told you to shut up. Yeah, yeah, some, uh, some furs. Oh, live ones? Hey, Tiny, what's with the seal? Will you shut up? 
I hate to mention it, but your furs are throwing a fit. Okay, boys, that's all I wanted to know. Well, let's think it's sealed. Gone after the sack. This guy laid down. It's a sack full of fish. Hey, what's the idea? Hello, stay right there. Hey, Rick. Cop, were you? All right, bud, drop it. I said drop it. Okay, okay. You ain't taking me. Look out, Rick. This guy's got a gun. Ah, Lego. Let go of my hand. Will you get the seal off? He's chewing my hand off. And drop the gun. All right, all right. Get him off. Come on, get him off. <laughs> uh, How do you like that? Oh. Timothy grabbed this gun up by the gun hand and made him drop it. I'll be uh, done. Crazy seal nearly killed me. You and your bright idea. Ship the seal, you said. Uh, okay, go. boys. Here's a bracelet for you. Let's go outside. Uh, Walt, Walt, wait a minute. We got to get the jewels. Oh. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll take care of these two guys, and I'll take Timothy to a good veterinary. Okay. Uh, uh Walt. Yeah? If it means surgery, keep in touch. Sure. Bye, Timothy. Rick. Huh? Now, don't be unhappy. Oh, how can I help it, honey? I... He's been in surgery for nearly an hour. Oh, but he'll be all right. They got a good vet. Oh, I hope so. I was getting attached to that seal. Oh, I got it. Yeah? Rick? Yeah, Walt. Yeah. How's Timothy? He had the diamonds in him, all right. Oh, but how is he? Well... Uh, go ahead, Walt. You can tell me. I, I I can stand it. He's very weak. Doctor says he thinks he doesn't want to live. No will. Oh, well, what's the matter? He was such a happy seal. I think he misses you, Rick. Every time someone mentions your name, he kind of honks and raises a weak flipper. I better come right down. He's sinking fast. Oh, you think maybe if he heard my voice... Uh, uh, can you get a phone near him? Yeah, yeah, wait a minute. Okay, I got it next to his ear. Say something. Hello, Timothy. Oh, Walt. Yeah? Walt, ask him if he's seen a picture called Mrs. Mike. He says he saw it. Didn't like the leading man. Oh. Loved Evelyn Keys. Oh. Ask him if he liked the music. Yeah, he liked that. Well, put the receiver next to his ear and I'll sing him the theme song. Well, go ahead and try. Anything in case of an emergency. If her name is Kathy, she's mine alone. When I walk with Kathy, proud am I. She's the girl I'll marry, and cross the threshold I'll carry. And I'll love but Kathy till I die. She's the only angel I've ever known. She's a maid no man is worthy of. Although girls are many compared to her, there isn't. Kathy, do I? 
Walt? I did it. He's better? Listen. Good old Timothy, that a boy. I guess the singing did it. What do you mean you guess? When I sang with the Peter Pan Five, we played two weeks at the Carl Gables Hotel in Florida. So what? So what? I'll have you know five minutes after I opened my mouth, every seal in the Biscayne Keys came in and sat ringside. That sounds like a pretty good act. Well, what'd you give it up for? Well, I got a sore throat one night, and the place was up to its ears in alligators. Rick. Yes, Wall? Bye. You have just heard Richard Diamond, Private Detective, starring Dick Powell. Ed Begley played Lieutenant Walt Levinson. Also in the cast were Wilms Herbert, Faye Baker, Junius Matthews, Billy Bletcher, Tony Barrett, and Larry Dodkin. Music was under the direction of Frank Worth. Richard Diamond is written by Blake Edwards and directed by Russell Hughes. Dick Powell currently may be seen in the motion picture version of the best-selling novel, Mrs. Mike. Isn't that right, Dick? Yeah, 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 that's right, Eddie. Oh, by the way, Ed Begley, who plays Lieutenant Levinson on our show, would like to say a few words to his old friends in Hartford, Connecticut. Well, I just want to say, on behalf of all of us here on Richard Diamond, congratulations to radio station WTIC in Hartford, Connecticut, where I got my start in radio, and which this week celebrates its 25th anniversary of service to the people of southern New England. Thank you, Ed Begley. Now, this is Eddie King inviting you to be with us next Sunday at this same time when we will again bring you Dick Powell as Richard Diamond, Private Detective. Governing a country is a pretty hard-headed business, and we don't usually think of our government as a dealer in dreams. But in one respect it is, because it's a dealer in savings bonds. Your particular dream for the future can come true through the judicious purchase of United States savings bonds today. As for buying United States savings bonds, the process is simplicity itself. If you're employed by others, use the payroll savings plan where you work. Your employer will set aside a specific sum from each paycheck for the purchase of bonds. If you're self-employed, use the bond-a-month plan where you bank. Either way, you'll be saving with regularity, with certainty, and with profit through the purchase of United States savings bonds. What's on NBC today? You'll hear Charles Boyer and Dorothy McGuire today on Theater Guild on the Air in Autumn Crocus. And there's the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show to add to your Sunday listening pleasure. Be sure to hear Charles Boyer and Dorothy McGuire on Theater Guild on the Air and the Phil Harris Alice Faye Show today on NBC. Presenting Orson Welles as the third man. The lives of Harry Lyme. The fabulous stories of the immortal character 
originally created in the motion picture The Third Man, with Zither music by Anton Karras. That was the shot that killed Harry Lyme. He died in a sewer beneath Vienna. As those of you know who saw the movie The Third Man. Yes, that was the end of Harry Lyme. But it was not the beginning. Harry Lyme had many lives. And I can recount all of them. How do I know? Very simple. Because my name is Harry Lyme. told me I was a poet, but he was so wrong. Poets are always singing about daffodils and brooks and skylarks and the women they're faithful to in their fashion, a sort of merry widow waltz. I, if I sang at all, would sing about money and the women I've known, but in an offbeat rhythm, money and women, somehow they go together, and neither is much use without the other, is it? At least that's the stuff that Harry Lyme sings about. Those are the themes to which he dances in life's ballet. Sometimes pleasant, occasionally a little painful. Like that time in Tehran. Some years ago, I'd just come there, and I was pretty sure that in a country with all that oil and all that intrigue, with so many people playing the game of empire building and empire busting, I could promote something that suited my special talents. I was walking along the street when I heard some shouting. A small frightened man, out of breath and frantic, came wheeling around the corner and piled into me head on. Hey, hey there. What's the... Where's the fire? Now for my way. Hey, not so fast. Papas, Papas, don't you recognize me? Harry Lyme. Right. Who's after you, the devil? Uh, the police are chasing me. Here, take this. Okay, what is it? $50,000 worth of opium. Uh, what's that? The opium. $50,000 worth. Take it. Well, what am I going to do with it? Then if they catch me, they'll have to let me go. Tonight at 7.30, bring it to the Grand Hotel. My principals will be there, and we'll cut you in. Okay, I'm with you. Beat it now. Duck down this alley. Thank you, Harry. Tonight at 7.30. Tonight at 7.30. Aren't you? Yes. Are you chasing the little man who ran around the corner here, the one in the dirty white suit? Yes, yes. You saw him? He went down that alley. Come! Down the alley! 
police disappeared, and then I did some running on my own account to my hotel. I repacked my bag, making certain to conceal among my handkerchiefs and shirts the package my friend Pappas had been so kind as to give me. Then... Hello, desk. Mr. Lime in room 1123. I want a reservation on the 2 o'clock plane for Paris. Yes, yes, I, I, know, I know I've just arrived, but I'm, I'm leaving now. I was now the sole owner of $50,000 worth of opium. In Paris, I could protect myself to some extent because of connections. And the other problem... I had this how to smuggle it into America, where I knew I'd be able to get the best price for it. In Paris, I set about to find some likely tourist into whose luggage I'm able to put my package. It took me three days to find my American, very lovely-looking American, outside a cafe. A lovely, fresh, unspoiled girl sat watching the Parisian scene. Some men would merely have looked at her hungrily until the cafe closed. It's not Harry Lyme. Oh, I know you. My name is Harry Lyme. I don't know you. Right. <laughs> I just introduced myself. Perhaps I should warn you that I'm waiting for my parents. Oh, good. Fine. I'd very much like to meet your parents. You are rude, aren't you? You don't really believe that. You know, a man can see a girl and know that this is the girl. One they've always felt must be somewhere on earth. The one they've never met and always wanted to meet. But he doesn't speak and she goes away and he never sees her again. So is it rudeness if he speaks to her? Is it wisdom? <laughs> You're very bold. Well, I hope I'm also convincing. I very much want to be. May I sit down? Well, since my parents are coming. Thank you. Ah, that's better. Now maybe I ought to know your name. Helen Bow. How do you do? <laughs> American? Of course. I'm from New York, but you're not. How can you tell? Because you're unselfconscious, because you're direct and simple in the best sense of that word. You're, you're not from a large city, but you're not a farm girl either. You're from a small city. Probably the Midwest, right? I'm from Youngster. <laughs> See? You're very clever. No, no, no. I'm interested, that's all. So interested that I can't be satisfied with anything less than a close and complete study of you. Oh, you make me sound like a picture in the Louvre. Well, you're much too natural for that. I hope you're going to be in Paris for a while. Well, we're leaving in about a week, I think. Doesn't give me much time. Tell me, are your parents due here any minute? No. I'm supposed to meet them here in an hour, but I didn't know where else to go. Good. We have an hour, then. Uh, at least an hour. For what? For me to show you Paris. <laughs> Come on. Oh, well, really? Let's I... make it more than an hour. Let's leave a note for them. We can meet them later at your hotel, and I'll take you all to dinner. <laughs> Goodness, you're so sudden, so abrupt. I haven't much time with you, you know. Only a week. Garçon. We went to the garden of the Tuileries. Though I was tempted to see whether I could wean this girl away from her parents for the whole evening, I for once acted the perfect gentleman. Refinement is one of my many skills. Boring but useful in my trade. This girl and her Midwestern parents were perfect to smuggle the opium into the U.S. for me, so I questioned her with real interest about herself and her family. My brother Jack was killed in the war. We came over here to see his grave. Mm -hmm. I was very solicitous. 
I knew that Americans are always happy to meet compatriots abroad. All Americans, but I, that is, and this time even I was delighted. I took her back to her hotel, met her parents, took them all to dinner. Yes, sir, Mr. Lyon. I tell you, there's no place like Youngstown. Isn't that right, Mother? It's nice, Tom. I mean, it's nice. And you, Helen? You like your hometown, too? Why, I... Of course she does. Why shouldn't she? She was born there. Oh, Daddy, that's no reason for liking a place. I do like it, though. Helen's had some of the nicest times back home, Mr. Lyon. I mean, she's really enjoyed herself with the young folks and all, I mean. Hey, I'm getting jealous. You come to Youngstown, Mr. Lyon. We'll show you what living can be. I mean, among real folks, Mr. Lyon. Mm -hmm. They were perfect for my gag. Real homespun boobs who wouldn't suspect I'd plant anything in their luggage and would not be suspected by customs officials. I knew after five minutes that I had the answer to my problem. After dinner, they took me back to the hotel suite, and here in a city full of the greatest art treasures in the world, I was made to exclaim over the family photograph albums that they'd brought from Youngstown. This picture was taken at the picnic grove, Mr. Lyon. See, Dad and his wife flannel, see? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Wore my ice cream pants that day. Oh, well, this picture doesn't do justice to Helen. Oh, you're making fun of no, her. No, I'm not making mm, fun at all. Easy to see which member of the family this young fellow's interested in. Eh, Mother? <laughs> <laughs> now you're embarrassing me. Oh, personally, I think it would be impossible to embarrass you, Mr. Lyon. Call me Harry, won't you, Helen? That's an example of what I mean. Oh, Mr. Lyme, here, here's a picture of our poor dead boy. Jack. Oh, he's a fine-looking boy. It's a wonderful picture. Why haven't you had it framed? It would look nice in a frame, wouldn't it? I sure would. Say, maybe I could get one for you. Oh, no. Why not? I know where I can get a beauty, and over here things don't cost like they do in the States. Still, we don't have to settle that now, do we? Right now, all I'd like to do is to have you all agree to be my guests on a tour of the city oh, tomorrow. I'd like that first rate. And one other thing, with your permission and with Helen's consent, of course, I'd like to take Helen to the Folie Berger right now. Well, that's up to Helen. Oh, I'd like it very much. Oh, that's great. Let's go. <laughs> three days I was in solid with the family and so the day before they were to leave for Cherbourg to take the boat for New York I felt I could move in with my presence it was a silver frame good sized one a thick one a hollow one for the boy's picture in my room I opened the little package I'd received from Papas and concealed its contents in the hollow of the frame then I visited the Bolt family in their suite well this is a wonderful present line I'm glad you like it. Oh, thank you, Harry. It's such a beautiful frame. You've done this so we can have Jack's picture on the piano back home. I mean, it's the nicest thing that's happened on the whole trip. Oh, believe me, it's my pleasure. Oh, see, see how the picture fits. Isn't it nice? Wonderful. Jim Danny. Oh. Uh, now, what time do you leave for Sherbrooke? Right and early tomorrow morning. I've been thinking I'd... I'd like to go with you, if I may. Oh, no. See you all. No, 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 no. There's no need. Oh, you'll be seeing us in Youngstown when you come back to America, Harry. Of course. We don't want to put you out. You'd rather stay in Paris. Oh, but my dear people, I'd rather not stay in Paris. I'd rather be with you. I want to wave goodbye to you as you sail. Well, it's very nice of you, Harry, but I... Oh, no, I insist. Well, uh... oh, Mother, I think if he insists, well, that is a compliment to us. If Harry insists... And I do then we've got to let him come. Don't you see that? Don't you agree, Father? Well, I guess I do. Okay, young fella. Gee, thanks. 
returns in just a moment as the third man. suitcase the picture with the silver frame got packed in. I was determined to put them on the boat. So I went to shore the night before they were to sail. I walked with Helen down by the wharves. So still tonight. Mm. The night is holding its breath for us. Our last night. Yes. Our last night is sad, of course, but there is something beautiful about it, too, isn't there? There's always something beautiful about sadness. Yes, I know, and Helen... I'd like to make believe tonight. I'd like to pretend that this is the end. Well, that we're never going to see each other again? Mm. Could be. Oh, I don't mean it, but even though I'd soon come to you in Youngstown, even though we might soon be married, I want to say goodbye to you tonight. The way a man says goodbye to a girl he loves and we'll never see again. Oh, I know how you feel. I feel that way, too. Harry, darling. Helen. Look at me, Helen. Yes. Oh, kiss me, Harry. Mm. Kiss me. I delivered a fine into the hands of her parents, and before we had a nightcap together, I helped them pack, helped them put the frame I'd brought them and the opium they didn't know about to a certain suitcase. Tomorrow I'd put them on the boat, then I'd take the plane to America, and before they arrived, I'd have certain friends of mine ready to hijack that suitcase as soon as they got it through the customs. Everything was working for the best, and the best of all possible worlds. I slept well. The next morning, quite early, I went to their room in the hotel. No. Well, I'm trying to rouse my friends. But, monsieur, that room is vacant. Nonsense. The bolts are staying here. No, monsieur. They have left at two o'clock this morning. See? I'll show you. Vacant. Oui, they are gone. I stood there in the doorway looking into the room vacated by my erstwhile friends. And in my mind's ear, I heard the voice of Papas. My principals will meet you tonight in the Grand Hotel. 
They met me, all right. They met me, Papas' principals, and took me. Perhaps Papas, who knew me well, had told them that I, I liked a pretty face. Now they were gone, and so was my opium. And so was my $50,000. I advanced into that room. But, monsieur, you have no right in here. Yeah, does this give me the right? Oh, thank you, monsieur, thank you. Can I help you in any way, monsieur? Yeah, I'm looking for something. We oui, and for what? I don't know. Clues. Here is this picture on the floor, monsieur. Ah, Brother Jack. Not that only left the frame around that picture. Ah, monsieur? Ah, never mind. Uh, what's this? What? On the desk blotter there. Someone was writing on a paper over this blotter and he bore down hard. Let's see. Let's see if we can make it out. Vingt-trois. Twenty-three. Rue de... Pêcheur. Twenty-three rue de Pêcheur. Ah, say, I'm off. Mais, monsieur! Ah, ces Américains! In Marseille, the short and quiet street, quiet to the point of being suspicious. The street was more vacant lots than dilapidated frame houses in need of paint. Number 23 was there. A house with street windows, a house seemingly deserted. No one was watching, so I mounted the steps to the porch with my automatic in my hand. in it. I'm coming in. Come in? Yes, uh, come in. Okay. Where are they? Who? People you're holding prisoner. Papas, I've come to take them out. Where's that girl? Where are they? In that room. Okay, lead on, McPapas. Open the door. Harry! Hello, darling. Hello, Mother and Father. Fine. Now, wait a minute. We'll make a deal with you. Over to the corner, Papas. We always intended to cut you in. Oh, that's a silly thing to say. Grace, he knows better. Grace, huh? Not Mother. <laughs> I'm relieved. Fine. Listen to me. And there's the opium right on the table, still in the frame. Well, thank you one and all. Oh, now, wait a minute. There's a man coming to pick up that opium and give us the money for it. He's due here any minute. When you knocked, we thought he'd come. He's paying American prices, Lyme. Yes, and we'll cut you in. We always intended to. What do you say, Lyme? It's a good deal for you, Harry. Yeah, sounds like a good deal. Ah. For me. What do you mean? Open the door of that next room, Helen. That's fine. It'd be nice to tie you people up in here. Oh, no. You don't realize. Lyme, you're not serious. Oh, Harry, please. Uh, it's no use to argue with Harry. I know him. He's not an honest man. <laughs> Come on, all of you. In here. Uh, all right. Now, all of you set to work tearing down these drapes. Come on. Hop to it. Helen. Well? You're going to tie them up. And then you'll tie me up? How would you like to come with me? Do you mean it? I mean it. We could be an excellent team. Nobody more innocent looking than you, and nobody more full of excellent ideas for making use of your innocent appearance than I. What do you say? All right, Harry, it's a deal. Oh, it's a dirty double cross. I'll pick you up off the street. Shut up. Shut up. All right, Helen, tie him up. Gag him. All right, darling. Glad to. She tied them well, and afterwards she and I went into the other room and waited for the messenger with the money. Oh, 
it's going to be a merry life. Oh, it is that, it is that. You know, it's a relief, Helen. What is? Discovering that you're not a little maiden from Youngstown. I can like you just as much this way, more, but it's fine not pretending. Oh, you pretended well. Not half so well as you. Do you love me, Harry? Now, there you are. A woman can have all the wickedness and all the terrible, precocious knowledge of a street urchin, and still she remains a woman. Do I love you? Yes, Helen, I love you. I'm glad. I have a soft spot, you see. I could have left you in that room with the others. I could have taken all the money for myself, but I love you. Oh, I'm glad you have that soft spot. And I am a woman, really. Well, there's messenger. Come on. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. My automatic. Never can tell when you're dealing with crooks. All right, let's go. I'll cover the door with a gun. You open it. Lucent, gendarme. Oh, police. Put down that gun. Monsieur, take it from him, Jacques. Eh bien. Now, uh, gentlemen, gentlemen, wait, wait. Now, uh, there will be no waiting, monsieur. We know you have opium here. We've been watching the house. We have also got the man who was here with the man. Oh, Harry, what can we do? Now, there, gentlemen, there is a clever girl. What do you mean, Harry? Do you hear her? She's making it sound as though I was one of them. Harry! What are you saying, monsieur? Well, you saw me with a gun trained on her. I made her open the door, and I was going to take the messenger. Did not realize, of course, that you, the so efficient policeman, had already taken him. I, I made this girl confess to me where the opium was oh, hidden. He's lying. He lured me here. He's been making love to me. I want the truth, Mademoiselle. <laughs> you won't get it from her, gentlemen. You said you loved me. You said we were to be married. Gentlemen, this is a most wicked liar. In the back room, you will find the rest of her gang, tied up as I tied them myself. You can easily trace this girl to these people. She's gone everywhere on the continent with them, pretending to be the daughter of the two of them. Is that a lie, young lady? You, you... Uh-uh. Monsieur, if your story is true, France will be most great. No, it's quite, it's quite all right. That's quite all right. You'll find the gang back there. Jacques, you'll stay here with these people. I myself will go and see. Uh, oh, by the way, Captain. Yes? Just in case you're wondering about my angle in this, I believe your so gracious country offers a reward in cases like this. That is true. I do hope you'll be able to put it through for me quite speedily, Captain. I really shouldn't stay in Marseille much longer. I will do my best, Monsieur. Thank you very much. Dirty, dirty swine, Harry. And how easy does it, darling. I'm a realist. You know, my sweet, though you are so beautiful, I'm afraid I cannot undertake to wait for you to get out of whatever Bastille is about to embrace you. After all, there's a time for everything. There's a time for seeing Paris. There's a time for making love, a time for sentiment. There's time for you. About ten years, I should think. So long, dear. Harry Lyme returns in just a moment.
there's a postscript to that story. I told you once before I don't approve of dope, and you may have thought from this little adventure that I'd gone against my principles. Really, you should know me better by now, Harry Lyme. Maybe a trifle underweight on some of the virtues, but touch upon his principles, and I warn you, watch out. <laughs> the police, of course, got the dope. But even if they hadn't arrived at that rather dramatic moment, I'll let you in on a secret. I'd already come to a decision. I was going to claim that police reward anyway. Of course, I may have been influenced by reading about the size of the reward and also by the size of the risk. You know, the way things are going. It may pay to be honest. It all goes to prove that even Harry Lyme may not be incorruptible. If you see what I mean. Hey everyone, I just thought I would step in here to say that there's a depiction here of a Chinese character, of course done by a white person, and I don't know why they always depict Chinese as having, as using broken English, and uh, I, I just don't see it. Um, but other than that, the show is very good, and that's all I'll say in the 21st century about that. Not not anything that I could change because I was not in charge of what went on back then. Anyway, it's still a great sounding episode after I cleaned it up and I hope you enjoy it. It is The Saint. I love The Saint and uh, I would love to write a script someday on The Saint. I think it's an excellent character and very aristocratic, uh, very smart and he gets hit in the head a lot, but uh, 
He also gets the job done, too. So enjoy this saint, one of my personal favorites. Adventures of the Saints, starring Vincent Price. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris and known to millions from books, magazines, and motion pictures. The Robin Hood of modern crime now comes transcribed to radio, starring Hollywood's brilliant and talented actor Vincent Price as... The Saint. Just a moment, please. Yes? Mr. Tempera? Mr. Simon Tempera? And if I say yes? Oh. I am a George. Congratulations. What army are you dressed for? Oh, not army uniform, I wear, sir. <laughs> sure. You uh, come? Huh? You come now? You want me to go somewhere with you? You are sure you are Mr. Simon Tempera? The saint? If I'm not, my old grandmother shouldn't have lied to me all these years. Then you come. Where? Did you not receive the call, sir? Even the most casual eavesdropper would have to admit it doesn't appear so. What call? Employer say, George, go to this number and get Mr. Tempera. Employer say, he calls, so when I arrive, you know, you come. No call, sir? No call. Who is your employer? Mr. Orlando Button. Him old man. He very afraid. Orlando Button. Art collector and button galleries. Employer say, much of trouble coming. You come help? Oh, what sort of trouble? We go now, yes? You go now, yes. My neck and I recently came to an understanding. Oh, your neck, sir? My neck. I promised not to stick it out again until I at least knew why it was going to be chopped at. And it, in turn, agreed to be a little more tolerant of starched collars. I am going to bed. Oh, no. You are coming. You know, with one swift gesture, you have given me six good reasons why I should go with you. Or does that revolver hold eight bullets? Are you sure this is a home? Oh, yes. Home of my employer, Mr. Orlando Button. Add a couple of ticket windows, scatter around a few timetables, and could easily pass for the home of the super chief. Employer awaits you in the study, Mr. Tempera. You come this way, please. Yes, now, look, would it be too much to ask you to stop waving that gun under my nose? You come. I come. Now, you wait. I wait. Sir! 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 Mr. Barton, I have brought Mr. Tempera, sir. Oh, uh, yes. Uh, thank you, George. I I must have dozed off. Uh, Mr. Tempera, it was good of you to come, but Not I... Not half as good as it was of George to bring me. He is very persuasive. Eh? Mr. Tempera, say no come. I invite him at the point of a pistol. You no call him, sir. Uh, uh, no, no. I, I, I fell asleep. I uh, uh, That will be all, George. Yes, sir. Thank you, yes. yes, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry George had to resort to melodrama, Mr. Templer. I, it, 
I mean, uh, look, you'll forgive me, I'm sure. It's all a mistake. What's all a mistake? This this incident. I never should have sent for you. I, My nerves. I'm a, a victim of my own imagination. Remarkable. Eh? Here you are, trembling, yet scarcely two minutes ago, according to you, you were in your study there napping. Uh, but what... There's fear in that trembling, Mr. Button. And on your face, too. You're scared witless. Scared people don't doze. Please, I beg of you, go at once. Forget that you've been here. That I... was a long ride across town with your chauffeur's gun in my ribs, sir. Long and unpleasant. But I didn't tell George to use a gun. I... I... We can talk in your study. No, you mustn't go in there, you... Oh! You... You shouldn't have done that. I tried to keep him out of here. I knew you didn't want him to see the... Why are you pointing that gun at me? What are you going to do? Mr. Tempera. Mm. Mr. Tempera. Mm. Oh, Mr. Tempera. Here, I am giving you brandy. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's good brandy. Wake me up some more. You are to be all right, sir. As soon as the canaries stop holding choir practice in my head. Oh, so sorry. I give too much brandy. Where's Mr. Button? He gone. Gone where? Oh, no, Seagull. I go to room. Time passes. I think maybe now employee want me to drive you home again. I come here to study, finding you on floor. Employer gone. Pictures gone. Pictures? What pictures? One that arrived today. Sailor bringing crate. Oh, well, what sort of pictures were they? Where the... Western pictures, same Western man. Look all right to me, but they make Mr. Button very angry. Oh, and then he told you to fetch me? Oh, no, not right away. Short time later, after phone call. Phone call? Employer call number, speak. He get information, write something on a paper pad. Then send me get you. The pad? Where is it? On the desk. Here. I give it to you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Nothing on it. Maybe he tear a writing page off. George, look, take your finger and dip it in the fireplace for me, will you? Keep it. Oh, too much of brandy, too much. Go on, go on now. Please do as I say. Get some ashes on your hand. Ashes? Yes, in the fireplace. Oh, oh, yes, sir. Oh, ashes. Fingers are all properly dirty with uh, ashes. Now rub it on this page of the pad, hmm? Lightly, lightly, gently. Here, got another. Magic. Western magic. Known only to those few hardy adventurers who have dared to visit the forbidden city of Brooklyn. What will uh, coming forth on a pad? A picture of anime wall. Holy mackerel. Look now, rub the ashes in a little harder, huh? Yeah, there. There, that's it. But his words. No, Pikachu. Words that were on former page torn off. If Mr. Motto should ever need an assistant. <laughs> that's enough now. Now, give it to me. S-T-I. Stiano. You know Mr. Stiano, George? Not knowing so. Uh, Stiano, S. S. T. U. No, Tuscany. The S.S. Tuscany. Oh, sounding like steamboat. Second thought, maybe Mr. Motto ought to be your assistant. Goodbye, George. Oh, you go? I go. I come. You stay. You go find employer? Yeah. Why? <laughs> Look, I like you, George. That's why. I don't want you to lose your job, so I. Oh, oh. oh. That's a funny place to put a chair. Your chair belongs over here. Oh, Mr. Tempera. You say I am to losing job? Why? We have a quaint saying in this country, George. Chauffeur lose job if employer lose life. 
speak up. It's me, if that means anything. Muller, huh? Hey, you're late. I expected you. Hey, what is this? You ain't Muller. Name's Templar. All right, so the name's Templar. What are you doing aboard my ship? Looking. You a customs man? You the captain? Third officer. Captain one ashore. I'm in charge. Look, fella, you boys from customs already went over this vessel three times since we docked this morning. Three times, eh? It's the usual procedure, isn't it? Three times as usual, and each time so thorough the ship is practically dismantled. What goes, pal? Hey, you tell me. I don't know what you boys are looking for, mister, but I'll tell you here now, it ain't on board the Tuscany. This is an honest ship. Yeah, and I'm the captain of the pinafore. You got a man named Stiano on board? Look, mister... Stiano's a good guy, one of the best men on this ship. He works hard, no complaints, he's loyal, efficient, a good all-around man. That's Stiano. Oh, you know him pretty well. Know him? I'm him. Well, I'm glad to meet a good, loyal, efficient, uncomplaining, all-around man. You know a man named Button? No. You say Button? Mm, Button, like in what one is sometimes told to do with one's lip. Button. Like in Button Gallery's Button? Yeah. I know about his art gallery, that's all. Oh, what about it? We hauled cargo from this voyage. A crate we picked up in Genoa. That's in Italy. Yeah, a crate filled with uh, paintings, valuable and rare. Yeah, I've seen them paintings. If they're valuable, then we're both the captain of the pinafore. Oh, bad, eh? All I can say is phooey. What smog fails to do to the human eye looking at these pictures does. How many? Seven. Huh. They were uh, sent ashore? Yeah, Look, all I know is we're loading cargo in Genoa. A guy comes on with this here crate. He gives me a song and dance about taking extra special care of this valuable art so it don't get banged around like cargo sometimes does. That's all he asked of you. That and also to deliver it after it cleared through customs. Deliver it? Where? To the guys consigned to, Dr. Weber at the Button Art Galleries. To nobody else, he says, just this here Dr. Weber, and I shall be handsomely rewarded. Well, where are you? I'll let you know when Miller gets back. Hope you found the art gallery still open. Well, I'll tell you right now, he didn't. No? Then what did he do with... I'm inclined to think he brought it to the one man he shouldn't have brought it to. Orlando Button. Oh. And this guy in Italy says, make sure nobody gets it but this Dr. Weber. How about that for luck? A lousy mistake is going to cost me my handsome reward. You're getting it right, pal. That same mistake may cost Mr. Button his life. sure it was you who just come off the ship. I'm kind of glad it's you, sucker. Yeah, you know, I'm kind of glad to see you, too. Let go. Let go. Let's see how good you are without the gun, you sucker. Don't worry about it. When I finish tearing it off, I promise you I'll give it back to you. Come on, now. What ill wind brought you out of retirement, Kasak? No temper my kind of work on when a guy says he's retired, he's either trying to kid the cops or, or kid himself. <laughs> you mean there's always another hoodlum who, who'd force you back into it, eh? Now, let's have some talk here. Oh, let, let go down first. Let eh? loose the talk first. I got nothing. Yeah, I'll loosen your tongue with a little history. When I first knew you, you worked for Scarelli as his trigger. Till he was deported a couple of years back. My, but you're full of news. What do you want from me, Saint? Who hired you to squeeze the trigger on me? Nobody has to hire me to gun you down, Saint. With me, that's a labor of love. I... Oh, 
my arm. You're breaking up. Turn him loose. Hey, Kisak, either there's someone behind you, you've developed a decided talent for ventriloquism. He's no ventriloquist, and I'm no dummy. Huh? Uh, who are you? I'm just a man with a gun, and the gun is in your back. Turn him loose. Oh, he's loose. Oh, pal, you sure came along when I mostly... Pete is. Huh? The boss wants you. Get right over there. Oh, you better handle the sucker. I'll handle him. You beat it. Okay, pal. Okay. All right, turn around, Templar. Carefully, very carefully. Good. You did that very nicely. Yeah, I've been taking dancing lessons. It's too bad someone doesn't sell lessons in how to mind one's own business. From now on, you're keeping your nose out of this affair. It doesn't concern you. Clear? Like tapioca. Yeah. I get shanghaied by a fast-drawing oriental with a gun. I get my skull bashed so hard my brains are threatening to move out of the neighborhood. I I get very sincerely menaced by a beady-eyed bandit with intent to kill. And now you come along and tell me this affair doesn't concern me? All this really happened? If I were dreaming, it wouldn't be about those kind of things. Okay. So what's the angle to all this mishmash? I can only make wild guesses. None of my ideas have had their final fittings yet. So suppose you tell me, uh, what angle are you wearing today? Like I told you, Saint, me, I'm just a man with a gun. Yeah, so you said. And, uh, the paintings? Paintings? Yeah, the crate of paintings, seven in number, that arrived today from Italy for the button galleries. Now I'm dreaming. You mean you're chasing paintings? You mean you're not chasing paintings? Friend, either you're deliberately throwing me a curve or we're not even playing in the same ball game. No, I'm not chasing paintings. What I'm chasing is just a little more dangerous. You wouldn't say that if you were wearing my aching head. I'll be seeing you, art lover. Yeah, it's inevitable. And if you should run across an old party named Orlando Button before I do, will you please do something to help him stay alive? Now, this is the last pipe dream I'll listen to. Why can't this old party manage to stay alive on his own efforts? This is one of the wild guesses I was telling you about. The last time I saw Button, he was a very frightened man. The kind of fright that only comes to a man who expects he's going to be killed. If I see him, I'll do what I can to stop him from being afraid. That statement can be taken two ways. And in the light of the fact that it was pronounced by a fellow who hobnobs with Killer Kasak. Goodbye, Saint. And if I were you, I'd worry about trying to keep myself alive. plainly marked private, isn't it? One finds it difficult to believe all one reads these days. You know, it's nice. What's nice? That they don't hang all the works of art in this gallery on the walls. Some of it sits in a low-cut dress behind a sign that says assistant to the director. You wish to see someone? Actually, my wish is to remain here with you, but I'd never get to see Dr. Weber that way. You have an appointment with Dr. Weber? No. Well, I'm afraid he can't see you then. He's very busy. And then I'll see Mr. Button. Mr. Button. Mm, this is the Button Art Galleries, isn't it? You will have to make an appointment with Mr. Button at his home. He rarely comes down to the galleries anymore. Well, then I'll see Dr. Weber after all. You not only find it difficult to believe all you read, but all you hear as well. Dr. Weber never sees anyone without an... Oh, it is you, Mr. Tempera. Oh, hello, George. You find employer? No, George. Gentleman is a friend of yours, George? Oh, very good friend. 
Mr. Simon Templer, the saint, greater detective, makes words appear on paper with ashes. Very clever. Oh, it's nothing really, George. A detective? Something wrong? Employer missing, Miss Arthur. What? Oh, he's mysterious. Crate come last night by sailor. Employer and I, we open. Employer get angry like he praises. Send me quick to drugstore. Then I come back. You sent you to the drugstore? Huh. Look here, what's this all about? Ah, about a crate of paintings from Genoa for Dr. Weber. Paintings? We weren't expecting anything from Italy. Well, perhaps Dr. Weber was. I most certainly would have known if the director was expecting a shipment. And what's all this about Mr. Button? I wish you'd Let's explain... go see Dr. Weber, hmm? Maybe he likes mystery stories, too. Very well, Mr. Templer. This way. Thank you. Oh, Miss Arthur. I go Paris car now, or... Yes? Uh, my car? Oh, no, George, you don't have to. What is a Wednesday? Paris your car, each Wednesday. That is why I come here. Well, you can pass it by this week, George. I haven't used my car much since the last time you gave it a bath and a polish. Okay, uh, very well. I skip this week. Through this door, Mr. Templer. Oh, uh, Lola, I'd like you to catalog that new... Oh, we have a visitor. This is Simon Templer, Dr. Weber. How do you do? How do you do, sir? Seems we have a mystery on our hands, Doctor. A mystery? Splendid. It was beginning to get a trifle dull around here. Uh, won't you sit down, please? Thank you. There's nothing like a little mystery to brighten things up a bit, is there? Hmm. Especially if you're one of those people who enjoys going to funerals, Doctor. Hmm? There's someone who... Uh, let's just say that someone, when last seen, was terrified. And let's also say that that someone hasn't been seen since. But who? Mr. Button. According to George, he's been missing since last night. I see. Uh, Mr. Templer, am I to understand that just because Mr. Button wasn't home last night, you are assuming that he's been murdered? Well, that is more or less the condensed version, yes. I believe the little verse goes like this. Don't make tragedies out of trifles. Don't shoot butterflies with rifles. Mm -hmm. It's just as foolish to make a trifle out of what might well be a tragedy. Perhaps I should give you the full-length version now, huh? Uh, perhaps you should, Mr. Templer. A freighter arrived from Italy yesterday, the Tuscany from Genoa. It carried a small crate consigned to you, Dr. Weber, at the gallery here. But I received no crate. What was Painting, in Paintings, paintings, Doctor. And from what Stiano tells me, extremely bad paintings. But uh, where are they, Doctor? Let's let these pictures speak for themselves. Where are they? I never heard of them until this moment. I wasn't even in town yesterday. You weren't? I was in Chicago, attending a fraternity convention. There was no crate of paintings delivered here to the gallery yesterday, Mr. Templer, I assure you. Oh, they weren't delivered to the gallery, Miss Arthur. The seaman who carried the crate in Stiano's place found the gallery closed when he arrived, so he did the next best thing, he thought. The next best thing? Yes, he had no way of knowing, of course, that old Mr. Button had more or less retired from business, leaving Dr. Weber in charge of his gallery... And so rather than lug the crate all the way back to the ship, he brought it over to the Button residence. Well? Well, Mr. Button opened the thing up, curious to see what sort of stuff his gallery was buying these days, I suppose. And probably wished he was dead. I'm afraid his wish was granted all too soon. But why would anyone take the trouble to ship us bad paintings? That's what I wondered for a while, too. And that's what Button must have wondered, but not for long. He tumbled onto it practically at once. Onto what, Mr. Templer? You're aware, of course, of the National Treasures Act, or whatever they call it in Italy, which prevents the export of great Italian works of art? Of course, we're aware of it. The Italian government has had it in force for years. They're perfectly right in not wanting our great works of art scattered throughout the world when it rightfully belongs in Italy. But I still don't understand. The uh, seven paintings were over paintings. 
Overpainting. Yeah, surely you've heard of the technique of painting over an oil painting with gouache, with a water-soluble paint. On the surface, these pictures look like something not even a lumber company calendar would be caught dead with. Underneath, as Mr. Button found when George came back from the drugstore with materials to remove the paint, they found masterpieces by master artists of the Renaissance. What? You're sure? Yes, I'm sure. Several dozen of Italy's treasures have been missing ever since the war. The customs men tell me the Italian government had a tip that some had recently been shipped to New York. How or on what ship, no one knew. But, uh, Mr. Button, what did he do when he... Well, being an honest man with a reputation of many years as a reputable art dealer, he was shocked. He sent his chauffeur to fetch me. When I got there, he told me he'd changed his mind. I can assume that Button had his mind changed for him at the point of a gun. Speaking of points of guns, sir, what do you think of the point of this one? Uh, hello, Kasek. How's your arm? It's sore, Saint. Very sore. But not as sore as your head is going to be when I throw some lead in it. What is this? That's exactly what the boss wants to know. What is this? Okay, boss, you come in now. Hello, Saint. Scarelli. You've got a good memory for faces, Saint. It's been a lot of years. Mm. Yeah, who could ever forget a face like yours, Scarelli? It could win an ugly contest anywhere. The way this guy talks, Kazak, a guy would think you're holding an invisible gun. Doesn't make any difference that he can't see it, boss. You'll feel it as good as anybody. I demand to know the meaning of this intrusion. You're in charge of this joint. I am Dr. Weber, the director. And the den? Miss Arthur is my assistant. Mm. You do all right by yourself, Fatso. Maybe after we knock off the saint and Fatso here, we'll keep her around a little, eh, Kazak? <laughs> You're the boss. What brings you back to this country, Scarelli? The crime wave became just a ripple when you were deported. I'm moving back in, Saint. Bigger than ever. But first, I gotta clear something up. Huh? What sort of something? Except for you people and a few of my boys. Nobody knows Scarelli smuggled himself back in on the Tuscany. You people ain't gonna be around long enough to tell a fly about it. So I wanna know something. Oh, why don't you try asking? I am asking. I have Kazak here watching that ship day and night to see if anyone is wise to anything. See if the federal guys are maybe heard I come in on her and I retrace him. And uh, they are, huh? That's what you're going to tell me, Saint. Kazak tells me he sees you snooping aboard the Tuscany. He sees lots of other guys, too. Guys with with a cop look about them. Well, they are a kind of cop at that, Scarelli. They know Scarelli was smuggled in on that boat? They looking for me, Saint? Well, these particular cops are customs, Inspector Scarelli. They're looking for pictures. Huh? Pictures? Yeah, painting. Oh... Well, that's good news. You hear that, Kazak? They're not looking for Scarelli. They don't know I'm back yet. Let's get rid of these stockers, them boys. They got mouth. Yeah. Start operating, Kazak. You're the doctor. Save the saint for last. All right, drop it, Kazak. Huh? Kazak, get it! I said drop it! All right! All right. Everybody all right? Who, who are you, Dick Tracy? I've already told you, Templar. I'm just a man with a gun. That gun wouldn't happen to be federal property, would it? It would. And now you're going to ask how come a federal agent lets a mug like Kazak loose after he's been shooting his gun off at a private citizen. Yeah, I know how come. If I'd gone through with my intention of breaking off Mr. Kazak's arm, he'd have led you to a hospital instead of where you wanted him to lead you, huh? To Scarelli. Right, Mr. Templer. Come on, boys. Just don't push uh, Let's get away from this smart guy and be careful with those hands. Well... <sighs> 
Now, uh, what was it you were saying before about things getting a trifle dull around here, Dr. Weber? Uh, this is a rather unusual morning, Mr. Templer. And the crime wave in your office isn't over yet. We're back to playing button, button. Mr. Templer, I'd prefer it, and so would Dr. Weber, if you put your cards on the table all at once, instead of one at a time. You've had enough suspense for one morning. Are you accusing Dr. How, Weber of... How uh, tall are you, Doctor? Huh? Well, I'm almost six feet. And you, Miss Arthur? Now, really, Mr. Templer, I... How tall? About five feet. Doctor, you wouldn't ever wear high heels, would you? High heels that left an impression on the leather upholstery of a chair that had been moved alongside of a doorway. I don't follow you. Miss Arthur does. She anticipated my wish to go into Button's library last night. Naturally, that wouldn't do at all. The paintings were there, and a couple of them already had the overpaint removed. Correct, Miss Arthur? You're insane. That wrap across the skull you gave me is probably what made me insane. Being a rather little girl for a headbanger, you needed height, huh? So just before I entered the library, where you'd had Button under a gun before my arrival, you moved a chair. So you had height, and so when I walked in, I went out. Well, I suppose one should really humor him, Dr. Weber. And then what did I do, Mr. Templer? You removed both the paintings and Mr. Button. You probably killed Mr. Button somewhere along the line. Of course, you can prove all this. You can tell me, or the police, shall we say, exactly where Mr. Button's body lies, where the paintings are, and... Unfortunately, no. Oh, then just as unfortunately, Mr. Templer, you have no case. Without the paintings found in my possession, without Mr. Button's body... Pardon, uh, interruption, please. Uh, we're rather busy at the moment, George, please. Oh, we'll not take a moment. Miss Arthur, you are to making a mistake. Oh, please, George, we're having a conference. Would you mind leaving... Arthur... Come all the way downtown to wash and polish car. You say car no dirty. Not in his bath. Not in his polish. George, will you please go now? But this is mistaken. Just see car in parking lot. Some other time, George. Car very dirty. Car need a wash. Polish most fine. I go do so, yes? No. Of course you go do so, George. And while you're at it, take a look in the trunk compartment. No. Trunk compartment? What find in trunk compartment, Mr. Tempera? Employer, George. Employee in trunk? No, no. I didn't plan to kill him. I, I didn't plan no. to kill him. I, I go to, I, I go look in the trunk compartment. Never mind, George. Go call the police instead. Oh, yes, Mr. Templer. I go call. And George. Sir? If Mr. Moto should ever need an assistant, I'll be very happy to give you a reference. <laughs> have been listening to another transcribed adventure of The Saint, the Robin Hood of modern crime. Now here is our star, Vincent Price. Ladies and gentlemen, in tonight's cast, you heard Mary Shipp as Lola and Charlie Lung as George. Ted DeCorsia was Scarelli, Larry Dobkin, Kazak. Fred Shields played Nash and Ted Osborne, Dr. Weber. Barney Phillips was Tiano. This is Vincent Price inviting you to join us again next week at the same time for another exciting adventure of The Saint. Good night. Saint was written by Michael Cramoy. The Saint, based on characters created by Leslie Charteris, is produced by James L. Sapir and directed by Helen Mack. Vincent Price is soon to be seen co-starring with Errol Flynn and Michelin Trell in 
William Marshall's production of Bloodline. All you Saint fans will be glad to know that the Saint comic books are on sale at all newsstands. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. For something new about the Army, hear the Phil Regan Show, next over most of these NBC stations. Coming from a different service base every week, Phil Regan brings you songs and fun and brings prizes to talented G.I.s. It's an exciting newcomer to your Sunday chime lineup on NBC. So hear it next, the Phil Regan Show. And later today, following the Phil Regan Show, hear Mr. and Mrs. Blanding on NBC. When I started, I thought one man was in trouble and three were trying to help him. But after I found two pounds of tobacco, two pieces of brass, and a boat without a pilot heading straight out to sea, I knew they had all been in trouble. And all had taken the hard way out. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Hard Way Out. I had killed a shank of the afternoon in a Hollywood department store, trying for the fifth consecutive year to select something unique in a personalized Christmas card. A bright-eyed sales girl finally suggested in desperation a smoking 38, spelling out Noel in delicate wisps of white curling smoke. Well, I gave up, settled for a reissue of last year's unoriginal message. An hour later, I was driving out towards Sepulveda and my new client, August Quigg, and I was glad to be away from the pre-holiday crowds and back to work. When I pulled up in front of the factory building, a... An immodest sign told me the man I was to meet inside was president and co-founder of Quig and Slater, manufacturers of nothing but the best in construction materials. Come in, come in. I'll be with you in a minute. I'm on the phone. Listen, August Quig does not change his policy overnight, Slater. Not after 25 years. You should know that, you of all people. Never mind the excuses, Slater. Those you always have, and they make me sick. Partnership trouble, Mr. Quig? Hmm? Oh, no, my partner is dead now ten years. That was his son, Keith Slater. But he has nothing to say here. His father left it that way. Well, sit down, Mr. Marlowe, please. Slater is not what I want to talk to you about. All right, Mr. Quigg, who is the man and what's his problem? My general manager, Frank Emery. No? He has embezzled $60,000 of this company's money in the last year. Hmm. Then isn't this a great time for you to climb the nearest rooftop and scream copper? No. Because I want to save Frank Emery, not condemn him. Why? What's so special about a general manager who keeps dipping itchy fingers into the till? Mr. Marlowe, Frank Emery has worked for me for seven years. And in that time, he has climbed from shop worker to plant foreman to general manager. And that is something which took me 15 years. Which proves what? That Frank can one day go right to the top. Here to my job. The honest way. And that is just the part he was on until a year ago when he got married. Oh. And he started to fill his pockets with company lettuce before he'd even gotten rid of the rice, is that it? Yes. But don't leap to any conclusions, Mr. Marlowe. Because his wife, Sheila, is a very sweet woman. Everybody knows that. And if anything, she should be a good influence. Mm-hmm. 
Mr. Quigg, what's Frank Emery's salary? 175 a week. Oh. When's your last see him? This afternoon, about 2 o'clock. I called him in here, but I didn't say anything about the shortage. We just talked. I asked him if he thought he needed a vacation. He only sulked. He said he'd be all right in a little while. Then he left. But when he got back to his desk, he only stopped there long enough to pick up his hat. That was three hours ago. You've called his house since? Uh, twice, but I got no answer. Here's the number, Marlowe, and the address. Mm-hmm. Now we better stop talking, start moving. I must know what Frank Emery plans to do. Yeah, this is my private number. Oh. The plant will close in half an hour, but I'll be here working late. Okay. But before I get going, Mr. Quigg, one more question. Mm-hmm. Just so all this will make some sense to me. Were you ever in a jam like this yourself? A long time ago, maybe. And you know what it's like to be in Emory's shoes? <laughs> You're a pretty alert fellow, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> I do seem to remember a rich man who once kept me out of a lot of trouble. But the details aren't very clear anymore, so... Good night and good luck. Mr. Frank Emery, please. I'm sorry, he's not in. Is this Philip Marlowe? Yeah, that's right. That should make you Sheila Emery, huh? Yes, I just finished speaking to August Quigg at the plant, Mr. Marlowe. He told me about you. And about Frank. Take it easy, Mrs. Emery. Crying isn't going to help Frank any. Yes, I know. But how can I help Frank? What can I do? I'm not sure, but look, can you meet me right away? I'm at the Golden Crown. It's a cocktail lounge on Santa Monica Boulevard near Bradley. Yes, of course, Mr. Marlowe. I'll be there as soon as possible. Exactly 34 minutes later, a two-tone sleek convertible about the size of a Pullman car glided to a stop in front of the Golden Crown. The loveliness behind the wheel was wearing a hundred-dollar hand-knit dress that just wouldn't let go. I knew it couldn't be Sheila Emery, but it was. She was a tall, luscious blonde with blue-gray eyes that were set wide apart in a face that any angel would have gladly traded his wings for. Now, five minutes later, we were seated inside at a quiet corner booth. But only two weeks ago, everything was perfect, Mr. Marlowe. Frank didn't seem to have a care in the world. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, he changed. He became quiet, almost morose. You never suspected that he was stealing from Quake? Of course not. And I still think there's some explanation, something we don't know about. Maybe. But from where I sit, it looks like you two have been keeping up with the Vanderbilts instead of the Joneses. It always dents the bank account. Just what do you mean by that, Mr. Marlowe? Exhibit A, that knit one pearl two number you're wearing. What? Exhibit B, that splash of automobile you drove up in. But Frank said we could afford those things. I know because I was worried when we bought the boat. What boat? The Carefree. It's a 30-foot sailboat. We dock it near our cottage just beyond Santa Monica. Hey, wait a minute. A sailboat, a cottage at the beach, that car... Just how far do you think 175 bucks will stretch these days? What do you mean? Frank makes twice that, plus bonuses. Not unless he has a very fancy paper route on the side. Because 175, period, is the figure that Quig quoted to me an hour ago. Oh, no. No, I can't believe that. Frank wouldn't lie to me that way. Yeah, some guys do funny things when they're too much in love. <laughs> Oh, now, look, tears take time, honey. How about holding him back long enough to give me some dope that'll put me on Frank's trail, huh? I mean, names and numbers, his clubs, his friends, anything that'll give me a line. Yes, of course. 
But all that information is, is, in, is in his address book at home. All right. Home's our next stop. Uh, just between us, Sheila. What are the chances that Frank has an extracurricular interest on a back street somewhere? Another woman? Oh, no, I'm sure that's not the way things are. Frank loves me very much. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Believe me, if he doesn't, we're not looking for an embezzler. We're after a maniac. Come on, let's get out of here. When we left the Golden Crown, Sheila was still crying in a no-shape to drive. So after parking my coupe in a nearby lot, we floated out to the Emory Place in Brentwood in a two-tone Nash, which did everything at the push of a button except dry a girl's tears. At her house, Sheila pulled herself together long enough to give me a handful of addresses that might possibly lead to Frank Emery. But just as I was about to leave, I noticed a single phone number scribbled in pencil on the edge of a desk blotter. It was Crenshaw 22131. And since Sheila couldn't explain it, I wrote it down on a slip of paper and filed it in my pocket and left. But once outside, I remembered that my car was still on Santa Monica Boulevard at the Golden Crown. So I started back to the house to call a cab. I stopped suddenly at the sound of somebody in the shadows alongside the house. When I moved toward the noise, a man darted out between two trees and I went after him. Get your hands off. Why? So we can play another round of hide and seek? No dice, brother. I'm getting too old for it. Now, who are you? What are you doing around the Emory place? Come on, let's have it. Say, wait a minute, aren't you? Aren't you Marlowe? The man August Quigg hired? That's right. You still haven't answered my question. Oh, no, but I will now that I know who you are. I'm Quiz Keith Slater. Surely dear Quigg must have told you of me, the wastrel son of his late partner. He did, but you're still parrying, Slater. Why were you hiding behind those trees? Correction, Marlowe. I wasn't hiding. I was waiting for Frank Emery. All right, we won't argue terms. Why were you waiting? Because I want to get hold of Emery and help him before he goes too far. You see, Marlowe, he came back to the office after you left. What? Did he talk to Quigg? No, the place had just closed and the old man was out for dinner. Did you talk to Emery? Yes, and it wasn't much fun. That poor fellow's just about out of his mind, Milo. Mm. Well, he raved on for an hour and a half about how unfair Quigg was. Said he knew that I was the one who'd get to run Quigg and Slater after the old man died. I don't follow that. When did you become the fair-haired boy around there? Oh, I'm hardly that. But I do own a quarter of the plant unless, of course, Quigg fires me one day. Those are the terms of my father's will. But Quigg won't fire you, is that it? He wouldn't think of it. After all, that would keep my dear father from resting easy in his grave. Okay, okay, let's skip it. Exactly what did Frank Emery tell you, Slater? He said that August Quigg was a two-faced liar and that he'd settled with him in his own way. I told Quigg that when he got back from dinner. And I also reminded him that Frank had a key to the office. That didn't phase Quigg, did it? No, he said he never worries twice. If Emery walked in on him, he'd think about what to do about it then. I tell you, Marlowe, we've got to get hold of Frank Emery and stop him before it's too late. In just a moment, back to the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, just one hour from now, over most of these same CBS network stations, Eve Arden will be midway through her regular Sunday night role of Our Miss Brooks, America's most charming and most highly unusual schoolteacher. You've seen Eve Arden make her hilarious way through many a Hollywood movie. Now you can hear her every Sunday night as Our Miss Brooks, just a little later over most of these same CBS network stations. 
And now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Hard Way Out. before I was back in my office on Cahuenga with my finger in the dial of the telephone checking the names and places that Sheila Emery had given me. Two nightclubs, three hotels, and five friends later, I'd run through the list without a single kosher lead. Sitting there thinking of all the places a guy could disappear to, I, I reached into my pocket for a lifesaver and found something else. A slip of paper that read Crenshaw 22131. The number I'd seen on the desk blotter at Emery's place. So, with nothing more to lose than another millimeter off the tip of my index finger, I went back to dialing. Newton. Pipe and Tobacco Shop, Sam Newton talking. Newton's what? Pipe and Tobacco Shop, what can I do for you? <laughs> Not a thing, old timer, my mistake. Pipe and Tobacco Shop. Marlo speaking. This is Sheila Emery, Marlo. I think I know where Frank is. You do? Yes, at our cottage at the beach. It's closed up, but I was just going through some things in my desk when I discovered that the keys to the place were gone. And I clearly remember seeing them only yesterday. What's the exact location of that cottage? It's two miles north of Santa Monica and down on the beach, directly behind a large white frame house on the Pacific Coast Highway. Number 1221. You can't miss it. 1221. Okay, I'm leaving right now, and I'll call you as soon as I can. So try not to worry. Somehow or other, I made it straight out along Sunset to the beach and then north as far as the large white frame house without being tagged for low flying by any of the boys in blue. But when I got down to the cottage on the beach, I found it deserted and boarded up like opening night at an unlicensed peep show in Boston. Except for a couple of stray gulls who probably had insomnia, I was all alone. But the gregarious streak in me didn't suffer very long. Because a minute later, I had an unannounced visitor... It was a nasty caliber 45 automatic. And the man on the other end who gripped the handle like he knew what he was doing was none other than the general manager of Quig and Slater, Mr. Frank Emery. You mind telling me who you are and what you want here? Well, the name, which probably doesn't matter, Mr. Emery, is Philip Marlowe. But my business with you is something else. I'm working for your boss, August Quig, and believe it or not, he wants to help you. That's a lie, Marlowe. Nobody wants to help me, and you know that. This is a smart trick, but it won't work. It can't work. And I'll tell you why. When the police do get to me, Marlowe, they won't find anything but a corpse. Is that clear? Suicide. Don't be a fool. What about your wife? Marlowe, that's why I took the 60,000 bucks. So say your breath. Unless you're interested in joining me, do exactly as I say. Now, here. Pick up these keys and open that door. Go on. Now, throw the keys back gently. Please. Emery, listen to me. No. I've listened to too many people already. Now it's my turn to talk. Well, I'm going to say it's goodbye in my own way. You don't know what you're doing, Emery. Stop a minute. Think. This isn't the time to think, Marlowe. This is the time to act. Now, get in. Emery backed me into the cottage, stepped outside, and pulled the door shut. I waited a moment until I heard his car start. And I tried the door and knew I was wasting my time. Emery had run a piece of pipe through the handle, and Gargantua himself couldn't have opened it from the inside. It took me ten minutes to kick enough boards off one of the windows to wiggle out and another five to get to a phone. When I told Sheila that her husband was on her way home in a very desperate frame of mind, she promised to hold him at all costs until I could get there. Twenty minutes later, I was in Sheila's house on Bundy Drive. 
Marlowe, what happened? Where's your husband? I don't know. He hasn't been here. Oh, fine. After you called me, I waited, but he didn't come back. Marlowe, what did you mean when you said Frank was desperate? I'm afraid Frank intends to kill himself. Kill himself? Oh, no, he can't. Now, we still may be able to stop him. When he left the beach house, he was heading someplace to say goodbye. I figured for sure that meant you, but wherever he was going, he didn't want to be followed. He locked me in and... The gun. Holy smoke, where's your phone? Right over there. Oh. Well, what about a gun? Does Frank have one? Yeah, yeah, 45. Didn't come here to make his last goodbyes. That only leaves all this quick. Do you know what you're saying? Come on, come on, answer that phone. No answer on Quigg's private wire. You're accusing Frank of murder. He hates Mr. Quigg, yes, but I know he couldn't kill him. He couldn't. Now, you listen to me. Your husband's cornered, and he's decided to blast his way out of a hopeless situation. I'm going to Quigg's office. If Frank comes back, try to keep him here. But don't try too hard, because it might be dangerous now, even for you. Drove down Sepulveda to the black, hulking plant of Quig and Slater, pulled over parked, and walked up the alley toward the side entrance. Through a barred window, I saw the feeble nightlight that glowed in the outer office. Otherwise, the place was dark. When I got to the door, I stopped. A diamond-shaped key stuck out of the lock, and the heavy door was ajar. I eased it open and listened. Nothing. I pulled the key out of the lock and dropped it in my pocket. And I went inside and switched on the lights. Oh, I found him on the floor next to the desk in his private office. He'd been shot in the chest point blank with a forty-five, which meant that even before he fell, August Quigg was dead. The room was untouched. Quigg's key case lay in the pencil tray on his desk. I snapped it open and saw what I expected. His diamond-shaped key. I switched off the lights and started out. I heard heels clicking up the hallway. I backed up against the wall and waited. It was Keith Slater. He hesitated in the open door, a startled look on his face. Good Lord. Quick. Hello, Slater. Who is it? Marlowe. I wouldn't touch anything if I were you. The police will want to see it just as it is. Marlowe, he's been murdered. I had no idea Frank would go this far. Yeah, he's full of surprises tonight. Are you sure he's not carrying any grudges against you? Frank and I are old friends. That old man in there was different. He wasn't human. He was a machine, a rock crusher with a concrete heart. I'm only sorry it was Frank who did that to him because he'll never be able to get away with it. He doesn't intend to. Plans to commit suicide any minute now. Tell me something straight, Slater. How does he feel about his wife? Is he jealous? Jealous? Why, I... Marla, you don't think that he might kill Sheila? I'm going to call her right away. Wait a minute. If Frank is there, a phone call would only hurry things. Come on, let's go. <laughs> like the looks of this, Marlowe. Neither do I. Sheila? Frank? Anybody home? They're not here. Neither one of them. Well, if they are, they're not talking. Oh, you've got a macabre sense of humor. Nobody's laughing, brother. Look, you check upstairs. I'll see what I can find down here. For once, I hope it's nothing. I gave the ground floor a fast run-through. It was neat and tidy, from copper-potted ivy on the dining room wall to the sunbeam toastmaster on the breakfast tray. The only thing out of place was a bottle of scotch near the kitchen sink and lipstick on the glass beside it said Sheila. I was back in the living room before I found out why she had needed that bracer. Propped against a bowl of violets on the coffee table were two notes pinned together. The top one was for me, from Sheila. It said, Marlowe, I just found this note from Frank. 
I'm sure he means that he's going out in our boat, the carefree. I've got to stop him, Sheila. I turned to Frank's note and was reading it as Slater came down the stairs. Something unusual upstairs, Milo. Did you... What's that? What have you found? Frank's suicide note. He asked Sheila to forgive him and forget him. Here, read it yourself. I'm going to call the police. Sure, he means that he's going out in our boat, the carefree. Say! What's wrong? I, I thought you were going to call the police. I was. But I noticed this phone number here on the desk blotter again. It's a tobacco dealer. Slater, I've got a very wacky idea. I'm going to give it a try. Hello? Newton Tobacco Shop? Yes, but we're closed. It's after midnight, you know. Yeah, I know. This is the police, Mr. Newton. We want some information. Police? What, what, what did you want? It? Take it easy. Do you have a customer named Emery? Frank Emery? Yes. He was in late this afternoon. What'd he buy? Tobacco. A special blend I make up for him. I see. How much of it did he get? Oh, my. Let me think now. Two pounds. Yes, that's right. Two pounds. I'm sure of it. Man could lay quite a smoke screen with two pounds of tobacco, couldn't he? Mm. Thanks, Mr. Newton. You've been a big help. What's the matter, Slater? You look troubled. Are you thinking the same thing I am? I don't know what you're thinking, Milo. This. Mighty weird for a guy who's planning suicide to go buy himself two pounds of tobacco a few hours before he blows his brains out. Put it succinctly, pal, I'm thinking that Frank Emery's suicide's a big, fat phony. This is Lieutenant Ibarra. Marlo Ibarra. Catching you at this hour is the best break I've had all night. How so? What's up, Marlo? Guy's been murdered, and his killer, one Frank Emery, is getting away by boat. Can you sell the harbor patrol on running him down for me? It's his own, a sailboat called the Carefree. A 30-footer with an auxiliary motor. He'll be out of ways, off to Panga Canyon. Well, that can be arranged, but where'll I find you? I'll need some particulars. I'm going to his beach place. It's in a little cove two miles above Santa Monica. There's a pier and a boathouse a couple of hundred yards beyond. Okay, Marlo, we'll find it. Now, listen, don't get your feet wet. Wait till we get there. The Emory Beach House was deserted and dark. So Slater and I went out to the boathouse, which was dark, too. That's where we found Sheila, lying on the planks, sobbing out the end of a long, hard cry. Slater ran to her and lifted her to her feet. Oh, Sheila. Sheila, what happened? Where's Frank? Oh, Keith. I was too late. I saw him leave. He waved to me and called goodbye. I begged him to come back, but no, he never will. Don't be too sure of that, honey. What do you mean, Marlo? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That boat coming in is probably Barra. Here. Uh, who's this? Uh, Mrs. Emery, Mr. Slater, Lieutenant Ibarra. How do you do, Lieutenant? Well, Marlowe, what's it all about? Well, Embezzler killed his boss, set up a strong case of suicide, and at the moment is pulling a very fast switch. You mean he's not really checking out? How do you figure? He bought two pounds of his favorite pipe tobacco today. What's that? Wait, Sheila. Well, that's interesting, Phil, but suicide's a peculiar people. Okay, but I'll bet you my sea scout insignia against a dead jellyfish that he's got a small boat aboard, and that he's going to get off the carefree and row to shore. How about it, Mrs. Emery? Is there a small boat? There's a rubber life raft in one of the locks. That'll do it. It's all he needs. Senator Barra. Yes, Mooney, what is it? We just got a call on the radio from the other boat. They've spotted the carefree running without light southwest about two and a half miles offshore. He's holding a steady course, but there's nobody at the wheel. The seems to be abandoned. Well, tell him to stand by. I believe her alone. We'll be right out. 
Well, Marla, we'll know in a minute. Let's go, folks. Get aboard. Sliced through the black swells with the easy grace of a head waiter after a $10 tip. And all the way out, it looked as though Marlowe was going to be the bright boy of the evening. When we pulled alongside the carefree, made her fast and boarded her, it still looked that way. It looked great. Right up to the point when Ibarra peered through the porthole in the closed cabin, jerked the door open, and went inside. <laughs> after that, it didn't look so good. Marlowe, come in here. Is this Frank Emery? Yeah. Yeah, that's him, Ibarra. He's been shot over the heart from up close with a forty-five. Undoubtedly, the one he still has gripped in his hand there. Lieutenant Ibarra, is it Frank? Yeah, you better not come in, Mrs. Emery. Your husband has killed himself. I walked back to the stern and sat down. Ibarra was going through his grim routine inside, and I felt lousy. I stared down vacantly at my feet and only gradually became aware of the little brass cylinder that danced across the deck with every roll of the boat. I picked it up. It was an ejected cartridge from a forty-five. I had found an empty forty-five cartridge. All at once, things began to take shape for me. Ibarra! Ibarra, hold everything! I was right. Emery didn't commit suicide after all. Phil, the man's body's right here, the gun in his hand. I know, I know, but he was murdered. Now, look, I found this out on deck, and the door to this cabin was closed. Do you remember? When a man is shot with a forty-five, he drops. He doesn't walk in, close the door, and then fall. Well, that's... Did Emery have any keys on him? Yes, these are his. They're in the ignition by the wheel. Sure, sure. Look, look, this diamond-shaped one. It matches one I've got in my pocket. Come on out on deck, Ebar, and watch closely. Hey, Slater! Slater, can I see your key to the side door of the factory? Why, certainly, Milo. It's right here in my pocket. <laughs> it's not in your pocket because it's here in my hand, Slater. You were so excited when you shot Quig, you ran off and left it sticking in the lock. No. And here's one for you, Mrs. Emery. While the carefree was still tied up at the dock, you stood right here, surprised your husband in the cabin door, and shot him. This little cartridge was ejected back to the stern. But you forgot about that, because after you shoved him inside and put the gun in his hand, you closed the door. Then you started the motor, locked the wheel, and cut the boat loose. I don't know what you're talking about. Look out, Ibarra! is that your gun! Ah, that was nice, Ibarra. Marlowe, I wouldn't have believed this. Don't lose your place, because you'll have to go over it all again. Don't worry, I won't. You see, it's sort of like an equation. Two pounds of tobacco and two pieces of brass added up to two bodies and two murderers. Well, Marlowe, it beats me that Mrs. Emery seemed to be nothing but sweet, soft, and stay-at-home nights. Yeah. And yet she pulled one of the richest double crosses on record. Ibarra, she let her husband steal a fortune for her and even helped him plan a fake suicide to get away. <laughs> then she turned around and used this plan, only no fake this time, to kill him. So she'd be free to marry Slater. But she didn't want Slater without the money, right? Right. And as long as August Quigg lived, Slater could never be sure of his income. So Slater killed him and they hung that on Frank Emery, too. Mm-hmm. And they worked a fast routine of past the detective right through the middle of it all. <laughs> while Slater killed Quig, I was with Sheila. Then Slater took me over while she killed Frank. They make a great team in a shell game, Wallow. Yeah. But you did all right. Well, see you tomorrow, the report, you know. Good night, Phil. 
sat alone on a pier for a long time. I watched the waves come in and gradually my mind got untangled in the treachery and violence it had been wrapped up in all night. And the lady turned out to be the tiger. And then as my thoughts plowed back through the whole mess of the afternoon when I'd been shopping for Christmas cards, I made up my mind to cancel my order and have an entirely new set printed up. They say it pays to advertise and if that's true... Right across the top of my new cards in big block letters, I'm going to have the words, Goodwill Toward Men. Who knows? Maybe it'll help. Anyway, I hope so. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in tonight's cast were Barbara Fuller, Louis Van Ruten, Bill Daly, and Edgar Barrier. Lieutenant Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... I walked into it smiling because it had all the corny elements. The weird doctor, the beautiful girl, the gloomy house on the windswept cliff, even the hulking menace. Only one thing was missing, the body. And that's when I stopped smiling because I turned out to be the corpse myself, almost. star of Paramount Pictures, Alan Ladd, as Dan Holliday. Hey, look, boss. Look at this. An ad in the Star Times out of town newspaper. Yeah. Box 13, Adventure Wanted. We'll go any place, do anything. <laughs> well, this looks like the right answer, Tony. Mm-hmm. I think I'll write a letter to Box 13. The letter was postmarked from a city in Nevada. It came airmail, special delivery to Box 13 and me. It sounded like a great chance to grab a change of scenery and maybe a little fun. <laughs> fun? Brother, how wrong could I be? And now, back to Box 13. And Dan Holliday's newest adventure, Triple Cross. Just run an advertisement in the Star Times, one that reads, Adventure Wanted will go any place, do anything, and see what you get. A lot of them can be interesting, like the one I listened to Susie read. The one that came airmail, special delivery from Nevada. Enclosed is enough money to buy you a plane ticket to Los Maros. You want adventure? All right. Come to Los Maros. Register at the Paradise Hotel. Wait in your room until you're contacted. And that's all it says, Susie? 
That's all, Mr. Holliday. There's not even a signature, even. It's what's called an ominous letter. What kind of a letter, Susie? Ominous. Uh, you know, that means it's not signed by anybody. The word you mean is anonymous. Oh. But you could be right after all. Well, Susie, lock up the office and look for me when you see me. With a new plot and a nice tan. A new plot and a nice tan, I said. I got the plot, but the tan almost turned into a beautiful white pallor. The kind that goes well with lilies. The plane trip was smooth. The trip from Mariport to the Paradise Hotel was nice and easy. And the hotel itself... Well, it was the only one I could remember that looked like the ads in the travel folders. Oddly enough, there was a room reserved for me. In my name. Okay, somebody checked and found out who I was. I explored the suite, thinking maybe I'd get a lead on what this was all about. But it was just a fancy set of rooms, all newly decorated. I sat down, and then, about a half hour later... Come in. Message for you, Mr. Holliday. Oh, thanks. Here you are. Oh, thank you. Oh, uh, just a minute. Who gave this to you? A man, sir. What kind of a man? What do he look like? Oh, just a man, sir. Oh, I see. A head, two eyes, nose, two ears, and a mouth. <laughs> that is description? Yes, sir. That's exactly what he looked like. Good. Then I'll know him when I see him. <laughs> oh, did he ask for an answer? Uh, no, sir. He just told me to bring the envelope to you. Will that be all, sir? Huh? Oh, yes, yes. Thanks. Well... Two $100 bills and a message that said, buy a red carnation in the flower shop and put it in your lapel. After dinner, go to the casino roulette table, buy $200 in chips and put them on number 18. If you win, walk away, wait 10 minutes and put half the winnings on number 22. After you play, wait in the casino. So, with a carnation in my lapel, I bought $200 in chips and walked to the roulette table. There weren't many players. It was a little too early for the big crowd. So, I waited a minute and watched the play. Took a look at the croupier, but I might as well have been in Timbuktu. He didn't give me a tumble. Okay, the best way to see what was going to happen was to see. I shoved a whole 200 on number 18. One or two of the other players placed bets, and then... No more bets, please. No more bets. Number 18, red and even. Your chips, sir. The croupier shoved the winnings across to me. I I watched his face. If he had any expression, it was on the soles of his shoes. Well, maybe $7,000 win was coming around here. I left the table, sat down, and did a little problem in arithmetic, which figured out to be... $126,000. That's what I'd have if number 22 came up. And brother had looked from where I sat as though it would. The ten minutes went by and I walked back to the table. Waited until the wheel stopped. Number 16, red and even. Place your bets, please, ladies and gentlemen. Slowly, I shoved 3,500 in chips to number 22. This time, the others around the wheel did look. 3,500 to 35 to 1. Then the wheel began to slow up. No more bets, ladies and gentlemen. No more bets, please. That croupier was as cold as the floor of a mausoleum. 
Somebody dropped a pin and I heard it hit the floor. The white ball clicked, clicked, clicked its way until... Number 22, black and even. Your chip, sir. I cashed in the chips and there I sat with $126,000 tucked away in my inside coat pocket. Somebody had that wheel fixed for a killing. I began to wish I was back in my office. I didn't like it. A crooked play. Why? Who? I made up my mind to go to the owner of the place and wash my hands of the whole thing when... Oh, there you are, Mr. Holliday. I've been looking for you. I have a message for you. Yeah? Well, it's verbal this time, Mr. Holliday. Oh, what is it? You're to go into the bar and wait. Is that all? Yes, sir. The same man gave you this message? Yes, sir. Did he still have a head, two eyes, a nose, and two ears? <laughs> yes, sir. Hmm. All right, here you are, kid. Oh, thank you. You know, if this keeps up much longer, you'll be able to retire my tips alone. Thank you, Mr. Holliday. Will that be all? Oh, uh, how much did this character give you to forget what he looked like? Oh, nothing, sir. Nothing at all. And a smart boy like you should have taken a good look the second time. Huh? Especially since I asked about him after the first message. Oh, he was big, dark, a little mustache, and he had a little white scar over his right eye. Would you take five dollars for that information? That's all right, Mr. Holliday. No charge for that service. Hmm. Good boy. I'll see you later. Yes, sir, Mr. Holliday. I walked toward the bar, wondering what was coming next. I didn't like that fortune burning the cloth in my pocket. The bar was like my suite. Fancy, rich, and expensive. I climbed up on one of the stools, and the bartender came over and... Yes, sir. May I serve you, sir? Got any ginger ale? Yes, sir. What with, sir? Oh, by itself. Just a glass of ginger ale. Just a ginger ale? Uh-huh. You see, I like the bubbles. <laughs> Champagne has bubbles, too. Ah, uh, but they're still around the next day. Just a ginger ale. Yes, sir. Of course. Excuse me. Is someone sitting here? Hmm? Oh, no, no, I don't think so. Thank you. Here you are, sir. Ginger ale. Thanks. The usual, please. Okay. Yes, sir. May I? You got a light? Of course. Thank you. Don't mention it. Here you are. Thanks. Why do you drink ginger ale? I like it. Why do you drink martinis? Same reason, I guess. <laughs> It's a brilliant conversation, isn't it? Well, I've heard better. You're not very friendly, are you? A uh, Boy Scout is always friendly. And does good turns. So I hear. Do you want to be helped across the street? <laughs> All right. I'll shut up. I took a good look at her. There was something scared looking about her. She was nervous. Well, so was I because the minutes were passing and I still had that money. And I wanted to get rid of it. But I wondered about the girl, whether she had any part in this. I watched her out of the corner of my eye. She picked up her bag, reached for a lipstick, and then... Oh, oh, clumsy. So it's true what they say about women's handbags. You get the stuff on the bar, I'll pick up the kitchen sink off the floor. I'm... I'm so sorry. Did the powder spill on you? No, it's all right. Yeah. Here you are. The, the mirror didn't break, did it? Nope. You're still good for seven years more. Thanks. Thanks ever so much. I told you I was a good boy, Scott. You have a nice smile. Want a toothpaste commercial to go with it? Now, don't be nasty. I'm sorry. I guess I'm just as nervous as you are. I... Let's talk about something else. She chattered away. It really is I listened with half an ear. Once in a while, through in a yes or a no. 
and the clouds began to gather. The mirror at the back of the bar went back and forth. The people got bigger and shrank the midgets. Somebody drove a plane through my head, buzzed around and made a bad landing on my brain, and... Just lie there, take it easy. Sure, I... Hey. Hey, I'm in my room. Of course. We brought you here. We? I'm the hotel physician, Mr. Armaday. Oh, what happened? And just a fainting spell, nothing serious. Fainting spell? What are you talking about? A fainting spell. Your wife told me you get them. My what told you what? No, 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 just lie back. Whose wife said what? Your wife. She's got to have a prescription filled. Now, listen, Doc, I... Hand me my coat, will you? Uh, it's better if you lie here. It's better if you hand me my coat. Give it to me. Oh, very well. There you are. What's the matter? Was my wife in this room? Of course. She came up with me. Uh-huh. Doc, what would you do with $126,000? What? A hundred? <laughs> That's an odd question. What would you do with it? I don't know. Because I haven't got it anymore. Now, back to Triple Cross. Another Box 13 adventure with Alan Ladd as Dan Holliday. So there I was, 126,000 in the red. If it was meant to be taken from me, then somebody was working it the hard way. Sure, the girl slipped something in my ginger ale when I picked up the stuff that fell out of her handbag. She took the money. All right, I want to know more of it. I was going to head for the nearest exit, running, not walking, when... Come in. You Holiday? Yeah. Do I know you? Call me Tony. I'm the guy who wrote the box 13. Oh... All right, goodbye, Tony. Sit down. What's the idea? Funny, I was going to ask you that. If we're playing 20 questions, let's skip the other 18, Tony. I got a big one left. Where's the dough? You tell me. Give it to me. Well, I didn't like him. I didn't like the gun he was playing with either. And I didn't like the little white scar over his right eye or the little black mustache. I was willing right then and there to cross him off my friendship list. But I told him what happened. It's a great story. Ain't heard one like it since I read fairy tales. Well, I don't care if you believe it or not. You got no regard for your health, Holiday. Look, Tony, I'm leaving this place You'll now. You'll be too heavy to carry out if you take one more step. That's better. Now, what kind of a frame is this? Once more, you tell me. I played a crooked wheel downstairs. I don't like that. You got adventure, didn't you? I don't want anything that's crooked. Now, look who's talking. Who was the girl? Believe it or not, I never saw her before. What did she look like? I don't know. Yeah. Ever try to take a good look at anyone in that bar downstairs? It's too dark to even see a lighted match. You're smart, Holiday. The game with the girl is neat, awful neat. You get the dough, play doggo, act like the girl slipped your mickey, later she turns up with the dough and you two split. Now talk sense, Tony. I didn't know why I came to Los Morris in the first place. I didn't know how I was going to get that money. How would I have time to dream up that frame with the girl? Yeah. 
Yeah, I never thought of that. Okay, Holiday, maybe you're telling it straight. Okay. Now can I go? Anna, no, no. you get that money back first, then you can go. I don't think I'll stay for the ninth inning, Tony. The game has not started yet, but you get that dough. How? That's your problem, but get it. Look, Tony, I'm backing out of this. You know I can go to the sheriff. Ah, no, no, you won't. Because there'll be a tail on you from now on out. One move like you're going to the law. Understand? Okay. Okay, I get it. And there'll be somebody in this room to see that you don't use the phone. You'll be covered like a pool table, Holiday. What if I can't find the girl? What if I can't get the money back? The boss will be awful mad. And? There are worse places than Los Maros to spend a lifetime. If you live. Ever have one of those dreams in which you try to run away from something and can't? Well, this one, with my eyes wide open, was really something. Tony and I went downstairs. Two other characters detached themselves from chairs when Tony nodded at them. Brother, I was covered. It looked hopeless. With Tony not far behind, I asked the doctor if he'd ever seen the girl who said she was my wife. Well, there was no dice there. Then I remembered something. I told Tony I was going back into the bar. Bar? What for? Now, look, Tony. Let me do it my way. I'm the one that's on the spot, so let me play it the way I want. Okay. I'll watch, and don't try for a quick steal, because the boys outside know who to look for. Go ahead. Thanks. What would I do without you, Tony? I don't know, because you're not going to be without me. Remember, I'll be watching. (laughs) Yes, sir. May I serve you? Well, feeling better, sir? Well, much. Where were you when, uh... When I fainted. At the other end of the bar, sir. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you were. It wasn't our ginger ale, sir. (laughs) No, it wasn't. I just have a loose head, and when I shake it, it comes off. (laughs) May I serve you something, sir? Yes. An answer to a question. Well, what's that, sir? Who is the girl who sat down next to me? I don't know, sir. Oh, yes, you do. I beg your pardon, sir. Quit the sir business. You knew that girl. Why do you say that? Because when she sat down, she asked for the usual, and you brought her a martini. And you said okay when she asked you. What does that prove? The martini proves you knew who she was. The okay means she wasn't a guest of the hotel. No bartender as polite as you are would say okay to a lady guest. That makes sense? Why do you want to know who she is? Does that make any difference? Yeah, because I wouldn't want to see her in trouble. I'll try to keep her out of it. I won't tell you. Ever see a picture of Alexander Hamilton? Hmm? What are you talking about? Well, here's one. And funny enough, it's on a $10 bill. In fact, his picture's on all five of these bills. Yeah. Her name's Kathy Lee. I think she has a place at the Las Palmas courts. Thanks. Put these pictures in frames, will you? I found the Las Palmas courts. And, of course, Tony behind me all the way. The name list in front said Kathy Lee lived in number eight. I looked around before I turned in the walk. Yeah, Tony was closer to me than varnish on a tabletop. I found number eight and stopped for a second. Looked for a phone line, but there wasn't any. I knocked at the door. No answer. I tried it again. Then I heard Tony whisper from the shadows. Try the door, Holiday. I did. It was unlocked. Tony coached from the sidelines. Go on in. 
I went in and closed the door behind me. It was dark. I decided to risk a call. Kathy? Kathy? Kathy Lee? She wasn't there. I fumbled my way to what felt like a dresser and a lamp. Turned it on and... What I saw made me turn that light off fast. What's the matter? She's dead. What are you talking about? You heard me, she's dead. You sure? Well, go in and look. You go back in and look for that dope. Go on. Now look, Tony, I don't know any more of this. That poor kid's dead. Murdered. I want you to call the sheriff. No, you don't. I said you go back in there and look for that dough. You look for it. Leave my fingerprints all over the place. Now you go back in there and hunt. Don't be a sap. Whoever killed her took the money. Don't you see that? Maybe. But we'll play this angle all the way. Now stop talking and get in there. I hated to turn on that light, but I had to. I didn't look at her. I looked through the room. Then I found something. A plane ticket to San Francisco. Leaving that night. And a boat ticket for South America. They were in an envelope, but the information on the envelope said there would be two reservations. I put it back where I found it because I didn't want Tony to find it on me. And there was something else. A locket. With a man's picture in it. I took it off his chain and shoved it in my pocket, and I left. Well, Helene? It's not there. I told you it wouldn't be. Stand still. Back toward me. <laughs> a frisk, Tony? You don't trust me, do you? Shut up. No, I told you. Who killed her? Find that out, and you'll know where the money went. Come on. <laughs> What's so funny? Helene, right now I wouldn't want to be in your shoes. Tony was right. People at the casino saw me win that money, and somebody must have seen the girl with me. Then I got the Mickey. The money was taken. The girl killed. Who did it? Mm-hmm. Me, Dan Holiday. Because the girl clipped me for the money. Well, this was a beautiful frame. Any art gallery in the country would be proud to hang it. But I knew something Tony didn't. The plane and boat tickets. Two seats. One for Kathy and her murderer. Somebody who left her tickets in her bungalow to make it look as though she was in on the $100,000 job by herself. Sure. Now her killer was taking a plane. In one hour, then a boat to South America. I could have told Tony, but I wanted to wrap it up myself. Besides, I wanted to get the whole thing to the law. On the way back to the hotel, I figured something out for myself. But I'd have to see the boss of the casino, and I thought I knew how to do that without Tony tagging along. The casino was full. I stopped. Tony stopped. What's the idea? What now? I've got to think. Up to your room. No. You want to get hurt? Sure, go ahead. Shoot me. Now. In front of all these people. You know, Tony, you wouldn't get ten feet. Smart, ain't you? Okay, what's now? I'm going to play blackjack. What? Want to watch? I sat at the blackjack table. I had as much interest in the game as Aunt Mamie back in Iowa, who never saw a deck of cards in her life. But I had an idea. And I played it for all it was worth. Look, uh, dealer. Yes? I didn't like that last deal. 
I beg your pardon, sir. I said I didn't like that last deal. Well, we'll return your money, sir. Never mind the money. Who runs this place? Hey, what is that guy trying to put on over there? What is it? it worked. In three seconds, I was surrounded by muscle boys, and Tony was hotter than a New York sidewalk in August. But he couldn't touch me. A minute later, I sat across the table from the owner of the casino. I told him what happened, and when I finished, he stared at me and said, You're trying to tell me somebody let you win that money on my wheel? I am? You're crazy. The wheel's straight. But you know I won that money. Sure I do. Any time a hundred grand slides across, I know it. But, uh... But this time it was fixed. A croupier was tipped I was to win. Wait a minute. Marty, send Frankie up here right away. Huh? Oh. Okay, forget it. What's the matter? Frankie, the croupier. Went off duty just after you won. He's not back yet. And he won't come back. Now, somebody planned to take the house this evening for that money. Somebody who couldn't risk getting it himself. So I'm the logical one. No one knows me here. I'd look like just another player. Later, Mr. Fixit plans to pick up the money and beat it. Who? Someone besides yourself who could get to the croupier and bribe him to fix the wheel. Got any ideas? Yeah. One. My partner. Well, that's it, then. It's got to be. But the girl, she doped you. That was a hard way to get the money from you. Listen, I've got an idea, but I'm a little cramped for room. Some of your partner's boys, particularly a guy named Tony, are glued to me. Get some of your boys to shake them off, and I'll bring that money back to you. How do you know where it is? I know. Okay, Holiday. Remember, fast play, and I'll find you if it takes the rest of my life. It's a deal. Now, uh, how about the boys? They won't follow you. Marty, a guy will leave my office. Some mugs are telling him. Stop him. Got it? Good. All right, Holiday. You're on first base. Go ahead. I was sure he'd be at the airport, and I wasn't wrong. He was sitting in the shadows on the outside. I walked over to him, and he looked up. Holiday. I thought you would be... Thought I'd be framed, huh, Frankie? What are you doing here? I've got a message from Kathy Lee. Kathy? She's... You ought to know you killed her. <laughs> You're crazy. Not only that, you've got $126,000 in that bag. $126,000 that looked like easy money. Shut up. That money doesn't mean a thing. It's the girl who counts, the girl who was willing to do what you told her to do. The girl you triple-crossed and killed after you double-crossed your boss who bribed you to fix the wheel. It's too bad you're so smart, Holiday. It's too bad you led with that right, Frankie. Somebody call the police to uh, come and clean this up. was... Oh, please hurry, Mr. Holliday. I, I want to hear the ending. All right, Susie, all right. What do you want to know? Well, how did you guess that Kathy Lee was the croupier's girl? Well, her locket had his picture in it. Oh, they should have given you the money as a reward. No, thanks, Susie. They can have it. But there's one thing I don't understand, Mr. Holliday. And that's? You didn't get a tan at all. You're just as pale as when you left. Oh, $126,000. A murder and a tan, too, she wants. Good night, Susie. 
Next week, same time, Alan Ladd stars as Dan Holliday in Box 13. Alan Ladd appears through the courtesy of Paramount Pictures. Watch for him in his new picture, Saigon. Box 13 is directed by Richard Sandville, with original story by Russell Hughes, and original music composed and conducted by Rudy Schrager. The part of Susie is played by Sylvia Picker. Production supervision is by Vern Carstensen. This is a Mayfair production. (laughs) 